Hello, everyone. First of all, I'd love to thank you for tuning in to the Integrative Thoughts podcast. I am your host, Matt Kaufman. And through this platform, I plan on seeking out guests that interest me, that I am curious about, and overall just living a more meaningful, purposeful life in hopes that you as listeners and I myself can grasp onto a little bit of their knowledge and integrate that into our daily lives. If you are a longtime listener to the Integrative Thoughts podcast, you know how often I stress the importance of detoxification. I believe that heavy metals such as mercury and aluminum, along with environmental pollutants like mold, plastics, and pesticides, are at the root cause of every dysfunction and chronic illness in the modern era. That's why I recommend ZeoCharge. ZeoCharge is 100% natural zeolite that does not contain any fillers, binders, or additives. ZeoCharge has not been shown to bind to any of your beneficial minerals or other nutrients. I take two tablespoons of ZeoCharge with filtered water every single day about an hour after breakfast. It is my go-to for detoxification support that I believe can assist any and every healing protocol on the market. If you would like to try out ZeoCharge, go to the link in my show notes and use code ITP for 10% off your entire order. So listen, I've been experimenting with different types of minerals, especially magnesium, for the past five to six years. But I could never really find a product that I could feel the benefits that magnesium claimed to give. Magnesium is one of the most important minerals for all of human health. It participates in over 600 different biochemical reactions in the body, yet over 80% of the population is deficient. Magnesium deficiency can increase risk for all disease and greatly decrease optimal performance. That's why I like Bioptimizers. They use all seven forms of magnesium in a highly bioavailable form in their product Magnesium Breakthrough. Magnesium helps with stress, anxiety, sleep, immune function, detoxification, and so much more. If you want to try out this product, head over to Bioptimizers and use code INTEGRATIVETHOUGHTS10 to receive a 10% discount on their amazing product, Mag Breakthrough. Today's show is also brought to you by Valence Nutraceuticals. Yes, this is the supplement company that I started with a few partners. Absolutely having an amazing time with it. Can't wait to bring some of the most superior mineral and vitamin supplements on the market to you. One product that I want to highlight today is Zinc Matrix Pro. Now, this is a zinc blend with five of our favorite forms in there. We have zinc carnosine in there, zinc orotate, zinc methionine sulfate, zinc picolinate, and also zinc glycinate. Now, this is going to have superior bioavailability and works systemically throughout the body. When we're reading hair tissue mineral analysis charts, one of the most common deficiencies that we see, or maybe the most common, is a zinc deficiency. People need so much zinc in order to detoxify nowadays and to balance out the body. So if you want to try out our Zinc Matrix Pro or any of our other products over at Valence Nutraceuticals, click the link in the show notes and use code ITP20 and that'll get you 20% off your first order. Now, if you're a longtime listener of the show, you know that I have struggled with mold toxicity, heavy metal toxicity, chronic infections such as Lyme disease, Epstein-Barr, and even Babesia. After spending about $100,000 on functional labs, protocols, fringe supplements, coffee enemas, and even biohacking devices, I finally found mineral balancing. 
This has been the most effective protocol that I have found to address chronic issues. This is a specific program using hair tissue mineral analysis in order to reverse engineer the entire mineral system all at once and detoxify the body of hidden infections, mold, and heavy metals. If you would like to schedule a consultation with me to design you a program, I have officially opened my books to take on mineral balancing clients. Click the link in the show notes under work with me to find out more. Today's guest is Noah Ryan, top tier guest in my opinion. Dude is wicked smart, has an amazing vocabulary, and really has done the research. He's kind of designed this lifestyle for himself that's absolutely against the norm. He's down in Mexico, really nomadic. He's on X or Twitter, whatever you want to call it. Uh, What looks like to be a small moped or motorcycle, he rides around grabbing his groceries, going to the beach, getting sunlight. Dude is jacked and ripped at the same time. Talks a lot about working out and mobility. In today's show, we're going to get into some of the benefits of nicotine. We're both fans of nicotine. Some people call that a little upper decky, um, even though I do use my lower or lip because I used to be a real um, tobacco chewer, but now I've upgraded to the pharmaceutical Lucy pouches. And so we get into some benefits of that because I haven't talked about that on the show before. And then we do get into a lot of different supplementation stacks, uh, taurine being one that we are both big fans of. He likes sodium butyrate, so I haven't tried that. I thought it was interesting. I may grab some of that here in the near future. And then we even talk about some psychedelic experiences. Um, Noah has not spoke about these publicly, at least in audio version. And we even talk about some of the spiritual narcissism that can come from some people that do do psychedelics and get like this symptom superiority complex that comes from doing a plant medicine ceremony. So enjoy. Noah, welcome to the show, brother. Matthew Kaufman, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, man. I think we're going to have a, a good chat here, especially from what we were riffing on already but pre, pre-recording, which tends to happen when I talk to a lot of smart guests. Um, you seem like a pretty experimental kind of guy. Um, what, what, anything you took as far as like nootropics wise or something you like before you get into a conversation like this? You know, I'm at a point now where I don't know if it's just the way that I respond to nootropics, but I try to stay pretty even keel. Um, I'll typically use like dopamine precursors. I've been doing that a lot recently. Uh, Like I said, like you said, you know, it's all experiments. I rarely have something that's my go to. I do like alpha GPC before conversations like this. I just find that like cholinergic function, like cholinergic activity really helps me focus in. I can just sit down and look at a screen for a while and still have some form of verbal fluency. So that, and then of course, nicotine. I'm a, I'm a huge nicotine fan. Uh, nicotine fiend, some might say. But uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I've got the, the Lucy Mint too. Yeah, I got, so, the, uh, I I got nicotine on, on my questions for you, for sure. Yeah, yeah. So that's my go-to. Just a lot of choline, caffeine, and then minor dopaminergics, maybe. Uh, big thing for me is just making sure that I get enough sleep. You know, I think that's a big one. Having carbohydrates before as well, I find that to be effective for a little bit more smoother of a conversation as opposed to being fasted. Yeah. So I usually do, um, like a more of like a, it's not keto by any means, but I usually am like kind of keto until dinner. And then I kind of just do like a refeed at night with like 120, 150 uh, grams of carbs, like healthy carbs. And, um, but sometimes before a show, like I just had like two dates. So like I had my nootropics, mm-hmm. um, from the, from, uh, by optimizers and then a little caffeine here and but then I will use a little bit of that glucose for some reason it seems to like kind of click with everything the caffeine the nicotine a little bit of glucose in the system kind of helps uh, for like memory kind of like verbal fluency like a good little mixture there so I like it 
Yeah, no, that checks out entirely. I mean, think about it. If you're ramping up your cognitive function, like your brain's energy production, you need that fuel to fuel those processes or else you're just going to be running on fumes. And I think that's why a lot of people will have adverse reactions to taking nootropics is because they're ramping up all of these neurological functions, but they don't have those necessary nutritional precursors to actually fuel that engine. You know, it, it's a very co- or like energetically demanding process to think at higher levels. And a lot of people completely overlook that. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. You talked about some uh, dopamine stuff. Have you ever tried the uh, dopa drops from Bioptimizers, the new uh, the Newtopia stuff? I haven't. You know, the only thing I've tried from Bioptimizers are their digestive enzymes, those proteolytic enzymes. I yeah. like their enzymes a lot. I think they've got some really good strains there. I use enzymes for more like you know I, I take I do like enzyme cleanses pretty frequently, where I just like eat nothing but proteolytic enzymes, and you know they're my favorite for sure. Yeah, my, <clears throat> I've had them guys on the show and. Um, they have some pretty cool like research and stuff that shows about like taking uh, the proteolytic enzymes like, in a fasted state or just without food, like all the benefits that come with that as far as like instead of taking it with a food when it's going to be working on digestion, you can take it separate and it kind of just like cleans out the system. So yeah, that's a good, that's a good job. Yeah, it's that they're like those enzymatic cleavers that break down proteins. So normally they're going towards the protein in your food, making them more bioavailable, breaking them down into individual amino acids. But when you don't have them in food, they have these systemic effects, right? They get into your bloodstream and they're breaking down fibrins that cause clotting. They're breaking down necrotic tissues. They improve your immune response. So I was sick recently and I'm like, you know what? Now's a great time to do an enzyme cleanse. It's taking like 10,000 fibrolytic units of uh, natokinase and then a uh, proteolytic enzyme blend. Yeah. Do you ever do the like uh, the serapeptase with the natokinase? I don't have any serapeptase. I would if I had it. It's kind of hard for me to get supplements down here. So uh, mm. I got to work with what I got. Yeah, I like the uh, – I've done the serapeptase with the natokinase. feel pretty good off that. I haven't done it in a while, but I, I have – the mixture of those two together seems to be like a potent stat. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's a lot of good ones. Um, I mean, God, there's so many in those blends. You know, I think – I know bioptimizers. I have another one right now, but uh, too many to count. When it comes to pretty like enzymes. <laughs> yeah, no, there's plenty of them on the market that are pretty good. I just think Bioptimizers does do the best job. Let's get into nicotine. I had that on. I see you post about nicotine. I always got got a, a lipper in half the day. Um, what's your thoughts about nicotine, especially as far as like Lucy or some clean delivery systems? What do you think about the benefits of nicotine? Yeah, so, you know, nicotine, I think it's it's an effective cholinergic right it's, it's acting on your nicotine and cholinergic receptors which downstream have a lot of different effects on on multiple neurotransmitter systems right so it's not just affecting your cholinergic system and acetylcholine activity it's affecting dopaminergic activity as well i think the reason that i'm so interested in it is because it's one of those fringe products right it's something that's been demonized for a really long time i've been using nicotine since i was a teenager you know i always had an affinity towards it looking back on it it's because it helped me think more effectively. It helped me think clearly. It helped stabilize my central nervous system and give me a sense of calmness and being someone who was quite hyperactive as a kid. I found it very beneficial. So, you know, I kind of dug into it because I'm like, why is it that people who consume nicotine typically have significantly lower rates of neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's and ALS, even in spite of them utilizing it in a more inflammatory manner or a carcinogenic manner in the form 
of cigarettes. So when it comes to the benefits of nicotine, I mean, I think the most irrefutable benefits are the short-term and acute nootropic effects. It is probably the quickest absorbed nootropic in terms of onset time. I mean, you put a you know, lozenge in, you take a rip of a cigarette, and you're feeling it within seconds. It gets into your bloodstream. It passes the blood-brain barrier. Now, compare that with a pill. You know, If I were to take a pill right now, I wouldn't feel it for the next 15 to 30 minutes, depending on what it is. So I think a number of, you know, the, the real reason I like it is the acute factor. I can take it, I can get that acute cognitive enhancement, and then it can, you know, half-life out in a matter of hours or, you know, even like 30 minutes. That's really big for me. Uh, once again, you know, I'm just attracted to the fringe products that seem to be demonized, but, you know, are not necessarily as black and white. And, um, you know, I'm talking about nicotine in particular. Tobacco is a different story, even though I do think that there are certain therapeutic benefits to tobacco, um, obviously not consumed in the method and frequency that we're commonly consuming it in the modern world. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that the nicotine stuff checks out. Yeah, it can be a little addictive, but I think if you're overall relatively healthy and your nervous system's functioning, you know, doing some mineral balancing stuff or whatever that looks like for you, it looks, sounds like you're just like out grounding all day, getting some sunlight, living more of a chill lifestyle. Um, I think we can actually handle like caffeine and nicotine quite a bit. You can look at even in Europe where there's less toxins, they're not overworked or, or nearly as stressed as we are. And they're, you know, some people are over there doing like 10 shots of espresso, smoking cigarettes all day, seem to be relatively good shape, healthy. I don't think they're dying of certain cancers, but we have over chemicalized or whatever word you want to use the actual cigarettes here, which is the craziest part about it because we um, bastardize the nicotine portion of like, you know, a marble cigarette when there's all these different chemical components that try to make it way more addictive that are very toxic on the system. And then obviously, you know, I learned from uh, Paul check. I don't know him personally, but like uh, listening to him about tobacco, he's big on using the vaporizer bags as the uh, lung being like a more feminine organ. So when you're like inhaling the cigarettes constantly and it's like an addictive uh, habit of yours, well, the, the lungs are very feminine and they can't handle that kind of masculine and tough toxic smoke coming in all the time. So that's why he kind of, um, gears towards the vaporizer and he likes the full instead of like the pouches like we're using he likes the full leaf of tobacco because there can be that kind of calming and the nicotine is more of an upper but the tobacco leaf itself is sacred for a reason it's kind of got some calming effects when you use the plant in totality and you only get about 30 percent or so of the absorption of nicotine so you kind of get this kind of even keel like um, balance i love the pouches they're easy i'm kind of like you i in like college and everything i used to put a fat lipper in like grizzly wintergreen and you know take adderall and study all night type of thing um so like i i kind of just like the habit of the pouches but i don't mind a good or organic tobacco every once in a while Likewise. Yeah, I mean, when you're combusting anything, it's going to be relatively carcinogenic. It's going to create those reactive oxidative species. It's going to deplete you of important antioxidants like vitamin E and C. Now, you know, I, I think that was my big push for like cutting out combusting anything and inhaling it into my lungs. Uh, you know, I grew up vaping, so I don't even want to know what, you know, combusting pro copious amounts of propylene glycol and vegetable glycerin and flavorings has done to my lungs, but also just look at, you know, the recovery and, you know, growth rate of the cells in your lung versus the cells in your mouth, right? Like you cut your tongue or you bite your gum and it's healed in a matter of hours, right? Your lungs do not have the same recovery faculties as your, you know, mouth does. 
So that's like a big concern for me. Um, obviously, I'm pretty big on athletics and having proper cardio output. But to be fair, you know, I used to smoke a lot of hand-rolled cigarettes when I was living a little bit more of a feral lifestyle. I'd still go to jujitsu that morning and I would outperform everyone in terms of cardiovascular activity. So I found that pretty inter interesting. I found it kind of oxymoronic. Um, but yeah, I mean, I mean, tobacco, like you mentioned, it is a spiritual, traditional, a medicinal herb, right? Um, you know, I've definitely been interested in that, especially in some of the, you know, South American and Amazonian cultures and traditions. Um, it is a potent antiparasitic. It is a potent antiviral. You know, when you're combusting tobacco in and of itself, it doesn't have the same vasoconstrictive properties as nicotine in its isolated form. So you're going to run less risk of those side effects like hair loss or erectile dysfunction, which are a result of vasoconstriction. Also, you know, vasoconstriction is just not good in general, like inhibiting blood flow to your essential organs. No bueno, because with that blood flow, as you probably know, comes oxygen and nutrients. So, um, you know, I don't know. I believe that I live a pretty pro vasodilatory lifestyle. I think that my like strategic and targeted use of nicotine as a cognitive enhancer is warranted. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I, um, you know, you can take different things to boost NO2. And, you know, I get in the infrared sauna near daily, you have a PMF mat, all these things that I feel like kind of help increase that blood flow. And then you know, obviously movement, sunshine, grounding, all these things that I use that we can call biohacks. And I feel like, you know, maybe if I was just sitting on the couch, sitting at a desk all day, like not, you know, doing any of these type of like, technologies and things that we can use to our advantage then maybe i'd be a little bit more worried about like you know overusing the nicotine but i haven't found it to really negative affect me at all you can use it kind of late which i like you kind of brought that up like the half-life of it. it's like i can have it a couple hours before bed and it like doesn't even affect like sleep quality at all which is completely different if you're trying to use caffeine or even a nootropic like if you take a nootropic in the um, evening like you're going to probably have trouble falling asleep four or five hours later mm -hmm. because they're just long lasting and they have your system ramped up. So I, I like nicotine for that reason. And it kind of gives me a calm, but also more focus. It kind of balances the two, even though it's not the whole tobacco plant. I like the feeling of it. It kind of seems like it calms the, the uh, nervous system a little bit. It does, you know, and I think it inhibits the default mode network, which is one of the reasons I like it, right? That system in your brain that's telling you you are who you are. It's telling you, hey, you got to do this. You got to wash the dishes. You got to text that person back. It quiets that and it activates the salience network. So, you know, that's what monks are trying to do when they're meditating eight hours a day. I'm getting that with, you know, a half, you know, three milligrams of Zin. So I find that really beneficial. You know, it helps me dial in. And that's why I like cholinergics in general. Uh, also, nicotine before bed is one of the most effective ways to induce lucid dreaming, right? It, it just like mm. up and it's super, it like hypercharges your REM sleep to a point where you're almost awake because you still have that cholinergic activity, you know, especially if you take it with Hooperzine A. If you want to really like get good at lucid dreaming, Hooperzine A and nicotine is a pretty effective tool to use. So you use Hooperzine A at nighttime before bed? I've only ever used that kind of in the morning um, as like a nootropic. Only when I'm lucid dreaming, right? And if you're trying to get a good night of deep sleep, you don't want to be lucid dreaming. You know, you're awake. So um, it's just like an experimental thing. But no, I was, you know, last night I was in my bed reading and I had a Zen in and I went to bed 20 minutes later. Yeah, I can, I find that, it, you know, I can fall asleep relatively easy. I take my CBD, my little uh, bioptimizer sleep breakthrough, whatever, maybe a tiny dose of melatonin and I'm out as long as I'm not like staring at blue lights or TV or whatever. Like, I don't think the nicotine, I usually try to use it a couple hours before bed. But like you said, sometimes you're like kind of doing research or reading through something and you kind of just want that last pick me up. Been a long day. I think it's effective. Uh, and, you know, it is addictive. Some people can, you know, use it in a crazy 
like every half hour type of manner or whatever. So I'm not saying you should just go pick up nicotine, but if you have a little bit of self-control and you have to do, you know, something like we're doing where you're just kind of trying to be on fire for two hours straight, you know, you, you know, I, I like a little pick me up. Yeah. And chemical dependency is only one factor of addiction, right? You got to think of the behavioral addiction aspect of it because doing this all day, right? The ritualistic nature of rolling a cigarette, lighting a cigarette, smoking a cigarette, the deep inhale you take when you hit a cigarette, most people who are high strung and high stress, which are most smokers have not, you know, they don't take deep breaths throughout the day. They're constantly shallowly breathing. The only time they get that reprieve is when they're on a smoke break. So that behavior is reinforced with the chemical addiction activity of nicotine. And it's just like a double whammy. That's why cigarettes are so much more addictive than pouches than patches and lozenges and even chewing tobacco. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I've given up nicotine like for there was a point where I didn't even use any nicotine when I gave up like regular like grizzly wintergreen type chew. I was like, I'm just done with this. You know, you're spitting in a bottle. That, that whole thing is gross. I was just young and reckless. And I didn't even use nicotine for like a few years until I got back into listening to like Aubrey Marcus or Ben Greenfield talk about kind of like the cognitive enhancement of nicotine. And it made me think back like I guess I did. I used to study on nicotine like, I, yeah, you used it when you're partying because it kind of goes along hand in hand with a few drinks or whatever and feels good. But if I really think about it, I, I think that I was kind of using it for a cognitive enhancement. And then when I circled back around to it and just was using the pouches and, you know, the more clean stuff, I, I felt like I was like, no, I'm keeping this around. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm in the same boat as you. I, I was a jewel pot at the library type guy in college. So <laughs> it just it just helped, you know, a little caffeine, a little nicotine. I think probably most of your favorite books and half of the uh, United States is probably built on those two Um nootropics alone it was every intellectual you go back i mean look at any picture of freud well freud was doing other drugs other stimulants than just <laughs> yeah he liked a lot of drugs yeah he, he was a big cocaine fan um but hey he was ahead of the curve right they started prescribing amphetamines pretty shortly after uh but anyway you know like all the intellectuals they're always smoking pipes for a reason you know and they were maintaining high cognitive function way late into their 50s, 60s, 70s and sometimes 80s i mean a lot of these intellectuals best work came when they were at a stage where most people at this age would be going through early onset dementia or Alzheimer's. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think it definitely helps. And there was even a new podcast I was listening to about um, a gentleman. I can't remember his name. He was talking about these new type of uh, insecticides and pesticides that are in the, um, in the uh, food supply. Basically they are taking like animal venoms and they're taking the peptides of that. And that's what they're spraying as far as like, you know, instead of like roundup or whatever, and basically the nicotine actually binds the same receptor that those like toxic uh, animal venom peptides work. And he was actually recommending that everybody, you know, as an adult should be on like around seven milligrams to up to 21 milligrams a day. He takes the patches just so it's like clean and long lasting. But he's basically making an argument that nicotine moving forward to combat those like animal venom venom kind of pesticides is actually a good move. So there might be a little bit of a benefit just from that nature as well yeah and i mentioned the antiviral nature and the anti-parasitic nature of nicotine or tobacco but we have to remember that nicotine is an, a, a plant produced pesticide right that's what nicotine is made for nicotine is a found, found abundantly in all the nightshades it's found in potatoes it's found in tomatoes it's found in egg, eggplants it's just found in the highest ratios in tobacco like it is a tool that was created by these plants to deter pests 
right? And for some reason, humans have this affinity for plant-based defense mechanisms, right? That's why we love caffeine. Like the xanthines, once again, they were a pesticide. That's why we love capsaicin and spicy food. Like it's literally, <laughs> it feels like our mouth's on fire, right? It's activating our, our pain receptors and uh, we love it, right? It, it's so ironic to me that uh, us humans just love these things that these, these plants created to deter pests. And what it did is just made us pests love them more. And then in some weird series of events, we made them the most promulgated plants on the planet because we love them so much. So it's it's quite poetic, actually. Yeah, I think it works. Yeah, and think it works. It's the same argument to be made around like the, <clears throat> the plant def defense chemicals, I think, within like the carnivore community and everything, because I was in that camp for a little bit. And then once I healed my gut and detoxed a bunch of metals, like I can eat like all these foods I didn't used to be able to tolerate. And I'm like, okay, maybe it, it really is like hormesis and you can eat vegetables and plants and fruits. I mean, they, they don't demonize fruits as much in the like animal based community, but uh, <clears throat> like a lot of the plant defense chemicals, kind of the same nature. I think that like, yeah, they're there, but we're like, we can basically use the other nutrients within our body and then you kind of get rid of the oxalates and we have a system for that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they've been fallback foods forever it is funny, you know, right? Like the traditional like animal-based primal carnivore movement started with just just meat, right? No carbohydrates whatsoever. Carbs were the enemy. And then a bunch of people started having like thyroid issues and cortisol issues and, you know, endocrine issues. And they're like, all right, all right fine. Fruit's okay. Fruit's okay. But a lot <laughs> of these fruits have the same defense mechanisms as plants. Like kiwis are loaded with antioxidants, right? Like yeah, they, does fruit want to be eaten? Yeah, they do. But does all the fruit want to be eaten? No. Does the fruit want to be eaten during the entirety of its growth cycle? No. So like those defense mechanisms are still there. Like every single phenomenon health, it's not black and white. There's nuance to it, but it is so much easier, especially at a large public scale, to just be overly simplistic and to be very binary. Say this is good, this is bad, because that's how the average person makes sense of the world. Um, but I think that's why there's so much importance for nuance. You know, nuance doesn't really get eyeballs, but uh, for the people willing to listen, they're going to have the best results when they learn how to entertain nuance. Yeah, I couldn't have said it better myself. I think a lot of people follow one, two accounts and just like try to mimic exactly every single thing that this person is doing. And it's like your body is so different and, you know, you could have more heavy metals, you could have more just different genetics whatever it may be that you look into that can change the complete like you might not do good on an animal-based diet i do pretty good on a pretty heavy protein diet i feel best that way and then kind of i have some vegetables and some fruits mixed in with that with whatever's like my satiety is left over from all the protein that i'm using but i feel best on that but then there's some people who eat like a lot less protein a little bit more plants and you know, I think that if you're really stuck in like a carnivore camp in general or like a really, really like strict keto camp, um, I just think from experience after I healed my gut and, you know, detoxed a lot of the aluminum and the mercury and those things, like I can just eat, I can eat sourdough bread now. I can have pasteurized milk if I really wanted to, I'd try not to all the time, but you know, like I can digest those things that I didn't used to be able to. So I think people should probably pay a little bit more, t uh, attention to like, you know, gallbladder, liver issues, detoxification systems, because, if the system's already too burdened, then of course that your, your insulin response is not going to be the same as somebody who doesn't have any heavy metals. Like the more that I get rid of those, I realize like, oh, like my blood sugar problems weren't really just from the foods. They're actually were from me, from the system. Now I can have those dates in the daytime. No, no low blood sugar issues. So I think we really got to look more deep at like the toxins and the environmental exposures and then realize that once we get those out of the way, the system can kind of go back. And if you look 
And there's a lot of accounts now that are making good claims about like before seed oils, before all the toxins, people were eating bread and sugar and they were on the beach in the 60s and they all looked, you know, skinny and hot and tan. And, you know, there's a good case to be made that we're just like overly burdened with the toxins. Couldn't agree more. I think you said that really well. I think that people's mindset going into these things should be not is like, is this food good or bad? Like if I can't digest the food, it's bad. They should really just be asking themselves, why can't I digest this food? Right. Because like I do that with gluten, you know, it's like I can digest gluten fine. I have relative like I've got an iron gut, but I do believe I have intestinal permeability. So when I have gluten, I get brain fog and my sinuses get all inflamed. That's actually the, the, the primary side effect of gluten intolerance. It's, it's not gut issues. It's inflammatory issues in your brain and your sinuses. Now, you know, once again, the question is like, OK, cool. Let me assess why maybe gluten is a problem for me. Maybe like why were we able to eat bread for so long, but I can't. Well, we also have to look at like what is the wheat in the United States? Like what is the, the composition of wheat in the United States? In the 1960s, we genetically modified wheat to have a lot more gluten because gluten is a very resilient protein, right? It's resilient to the external environmental stressors. So you could grow this wheat in a lot more detrimental environments, you know, with a lot more wind, with less soiled quality, right? With more erosion capacity. Uh, that's great. You know, that made it more resilient to grow, but it also made it more resilient for a digestive system. So there's that factor. And then also looking at, you know, carbohydrates is another really good example. It's like carbohydrates necessarily aren't bad. Like carbohydrates are essential. They're so essential that if we don't eat glucose, our body will break down our own tissue and other macronutrients to create that glucose via gluconeogenesis. So um, why can't I personally digest carbohydrates? And, you know, I think just entertaining more curiosity. It's really hard because we always want the simple answer. We just want the scapegoat. We want to point the finger at one thing and say that's the problem. That's never how it works. And I think if you really commit yourself to figuring out your health, you're going to realize that it's just a never-ending rabbit hole. And then you just reach a point where you kind of make, make meet this homeostasis. And, you know, you just your, your perspective changes. You're a lot slower to jump the gun and blame one thing for all your problems. Yeah, I totally agree. I want to back up now that we're kind of just riffing and I want to, you know, tell people a little bit about your background. Did you have any kind of like health issues that got you? I know a lot of us like me, I had Lyme and all these heavy metals. So it kind of like forced me into this kind of um, field of health and biohacking, whatever you want to call it. Did you have any kind of issues that arose or have you kind of always just been obsessed with health? Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it's so multifactorial too, right? Because I'm interested in probably a, a relatively wide and seemingly disconnected array of health things. I'm very much into the more, you know, holistic detox, you know, organ function like factors. I'm interested in like the neurocognitive function factors as well. And then I'm also interested in the physical and physiological components of health. And they all have melded together. But I think what got me into those have been all very different. I was into fitness at a very young age. You know, I was relatively small as a kid. I was always injured and I was kind of sick of that. And I was honestly just kind of annoyed with the fact that out of all the animals in the animal kingdom, humans were pretty weak. You know, like you see a dog and two dogs can go at it like crazy and be relatively fine. Like they're a lot more resilient. Dog will get hit by a car and it'll get up and it'll walk away. You know, these giant apes are able to walk around and like break trees in half and stuff like that. So I was almost envious of other animals in the animal kingdom because uh, I was obsessed with animals as a kid. I, I always was. So I got really into fitness. I got into this idea of kind of like just becoming stronger. You know, it was one of the few things that was within my locus of control. I could control the inputs going into my body and I could control the outputs that I did with my body. So I got quite strong, but you know, it was obviously like most people that get into the fitness space, it was superficial. I was only looking at things from a macronutrient standpoint. I wasn't focusing on health. I was focusing on direct outcomes of getting bigger and stronger. Now I got to college. <clears throat> 
I got a few concussions. And then, you know, I think the real big like shift for me looking at health in a different perspective was adverse reactions to uh, a, a couple of pharmaceuticals that I was on. I took Accutane when I was a teenager. I was on SSRIs when I was a teenager. And I had pretty severe reactions to both of those. Um, you know, reactions that I'm kind of dealing with to this day, you know, because those are just very poisonous and toxic drugs. So I really had to kind of dig myself out of that hole. I had horrible memory issues. I had tinnitus. I had, you know, dopaminergic and serotonergic issues to the point where, you know, I really wasn't able to feel a lot of things in terms of emotions. And I was a very emotional person. I just had like this reward response blunting and I just felt bad. Like I got chronic fatigue. I got um, like, like I said, really bad memory issues. I really wasn't able to be present or anything like that. And, you know, ever since that happened, I've just been like, What's the one thing I'm going to have for the rest of my life? It's going to be my health. You know, I find this very interesting to me. It comes easy to me. And, uh, you know, I want to dig deeper because I want to figure this out because no one else is going to figure it out for me. And I think that mindset has served me really well. And to be honest, I'm just very curious about everything related to, you know, who we are as humans and like how can we perform better in this inherently toxic world? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I used to do the same thing. I used to power lift in high school and, you know, in college, I never did like powerlifting meets, but I just would like do the macro count macros all the time. And that's what I just thought health was like, you know, you eat chicken and rice and broccoli and tuna and you have protein shakes and drink milk and you, you know, you just bulk and you cut and, and that was good. And then I did a bunch of drugs forever and was partying too hard and then like tried to get sober. And I kind of same thing as you, like as I came down from taking all the Adderall and the different th stimulants and stuff I would take, I just couldn't think straight. Like I moved across the country. I was getting sunlight. I was, you know, running, working out. And I just really had minimal energy and super bad brain fog and ended up taking about five years to work through all that and finally figuring out the mineral balancing stuff to get rid of the heavy metals and <clears throat> I had tried other heavy metal detoxes and they just really didn't work. And this has been the first thing that's worked for me. And it's super interesting because you don't really ask that you I mean, you can take a diagnosis like Lyme or Epstein bar or something into consideration, but overall you're just kind of looking at the mineral patterns and the ratios and subscribing from there, you know, you just, you know, making the supplement protocol right off of that. And so I thought that was super interesting, but yeah, did you have um, troubles like any, like getting off of SSRIs? Did you use any kind of like uh, supplementation or are you just kind of cold Turkey? I, I chatted around my way through it. I was actually, because um, I've done it a few times, right? And listen, this is the issue with SSRIs. I don't think I had any business being on SSRIs in the first place. You know, like I was living in the Midwest. I'm a guy that needs a lot of sun and a lot of nature and I'm stuck inside in a basement all day. So yeah, I was feeling a little bit bummed. You know, I had a little bit of anxiety. Uh, I also had a lot of ADHD. So like I was a very hyperactive person. What happens when you put a monkey in a cage? You know, it starts freaking out. Um, so like it was really just mismanagement by my primary care provider. I mean, it was really crazy that situation that I was in because none of these were any, di there was no diagnoses, right? I've never been diagnosed with anything. Um, and I was still being shilled all these drugs as if it was just a heyday, you know, I'm convinced it was an inside job still like I, not an inside job, but I'm convinced that there was. <laughs> I'm like not some correlation there. I think it was just like malpractice, really. Um, so yeah, you know, I got prescribed a lot of these medications that I didn't need. Uh, obviously, having adverse reactions to the medications, like what is the logical solution to get off them? But instead of getting off of them, they prescribe you different drugs, different dosages and different frequencies. They give you drugs to, you know, handle the side effects caused by other drugs instead of just getting you off of the drugs. Um, so I, yeah, I kind of powered through it. You know, there was a time I went to school in Bangkok and I was in Vietnam uh, and I forgot my meds, you know, for two weeks in Vietnam. So I had like horrible withdrawal symptoms there, 
once again, just kind of powered through it. Um, but yeah, when I was 22, I got off from cold turkey because I had an adverse reaction when I was in Thailand. Um, and I, it was just like a slow detrimental downhill, you know, like really losing kind of that spark, you know, that spark of ability to feel kind of high highs, you know, feel low lows. I got anhedonia and that's pretty much what happened. I started losing my memory, you know, to this day, my memory is still a little bit Swiss cheesy, uh, in terms of experiential learning, you know, I, I still have like the, the factual tangible memory that has maintained, but, um, yeah, it really messed me up. So I, I just went off of them cold turkey. You know, when I did it, uh, when I was 22, like fully, uh, 22 or 21, I, I tapered down, but I didn't do it, you know, technically by any means. I was a lot less educated then. I was working in, in the tech industry. Um, and yeah, uh, kind of just tapered off of them. And I was fine. You know, I was fine. Like the, the damage happened while I was still on them. Right. So me being on them or being me, me being off of them, there was there was no difference. It, it was like the damage occurred, you know, so uh, I didn't have any adverse effects getting off. The adverse effects occurred before I got off. Yeah, that's probably almost a blessing, really, because that's that's like where I was with. Uh, I think a lot of people get um, kind of turned off around like detoxification because you don't feel too good and you feel awful. But like I was already in a place before starting the detox where I was like, well, I feel awful anyways. Why not just go through it? And it seems like you kind of had that similar, like, well, I feel terrible on the SSRI. So who cares if I feel terrible coming off of it? Cause I don't feel any better when I'm on it. And you know, my brother went through that whole, uh, loop kind of like loop of seeing different doctors and they just give you a different, you know, you go from Wellbutrin to whatever else they give you and they up the dose and down the dose and switch it every six months. And I would try to tell them like, uh, clearly they're not, none of them are working. You still have, you know, the, the panic attacks of anxiety. Like maybe you need to check like your alcohol intake or your diet or, you know, sunshine might be good vitamin D and, uh, but yeah, probably a blessing for you that you just felt crappy when you were on them as well. And I, I have noticed that with my brother, as far as like the, um, the blunting of emotions, in my opinion, where like he, he's like told me before, like he doesn't really feel sad at a, at a funeral. Right. Or he doesn't really feel like joy when like something in his life goes right. And, and you know, that, that feel, I feel bad for him. And, you know, maybe that was a blessing for me because when I was really depressed and sick, I knew for a fact, like I would never take an SSRI because I was like, I kind of blunted my brother. And I feel like there was something like deeper in the biochemistry that was going on that needed to be fixed. Like, you know, like maybe I should quit drinking. Maybe I should move to Tampa and get some sunlight. Maybe I should be around happier, healthier people. And, you know, slowly over time, I just got better and I never used any of them drugs like that. Yeah, yeah, it's smart. I think that's the best thing that can happen is learning from the experiences of others because these experiences are suppressed, right? These anecdotal reports are suppressed. They're not going to tell you about that when they prescribe it. They're not going to tell you about the side effects. And, you know, I'm still struggling with the side effects to this day. I spent all morning looking at like a new approach utilizing HDAC inhibitors and altering gene expression to potentially re-upregulate, you know, some of the dampened serotonergic function in some of my autoreceptors like 5-HT1A and 5-HT2C. But um, they're not going to tell you about it, right? And there's people that have had it a lot worse than I have. There's a lot of people that have some pretty serious sexual side effects that linger after they stop taking them. It's it's called post-SSRI sexual dysfunction. There are a myriad of anecdotal reports, you know, documented suicides from people that have had it. But you go and you tell your doctor and like, oh, that's just a side effect of depression. Let's get you back on these drugs. And they give you another drug and then, you know, that potentially makes everything worse. Yeah, that, I didn't even think about that. It's kind of like with the the whole 2020 thing, you know, and everyone getting getting boosted up, and then now they'll they'll blame the stuff from that on actual on COVID or whatever. It's just same same thing. They always like push away, you know, their actual 
um, obligation and duty to what actually happened and they'll push it off and say, oh, well, that's just the side effect of the, you know, whatever virus or, um, you know, your depression. People who are depressed, you know, act in that manner. And it's like, well, no, there's also clear data that's showing that this is direct effects from these things. And the um, pharmaceutical industry gets gets away with a killing, honestly, man. They, they pay small fees for the amount of money that they make, um, even if they for do the lives that they ruined. Yeah, they're paying pennies. They're paying pennies on the billions that they're making for sure. Like, so it looks like this big like settlement. If someone just reads like, oh, Bayer had to pay 200 million or whatever. It's like, well, all right for a glyphosate or whatever it is. And then, but it's like how much glyphosate have they sold? They've made like trillions of dollars. And then, yeah, they gave off a couple hundred million to keep you away for a little bit. And it's crazy. And they're, they're, they're putting a dollar sign on a life that's been right. ruined. hundreds, if not th- thousands of lives that have been ruined in multiple different cases. And uh, they get away with it scot-free. They don't change the problem. They just suppress the people that bring up the problem, right, with money. So uh, that's the issue. There's no change that's happening, right? And now we're seeing this with companies like Hims and Roman that are being pushed by the masses, that are being pushed by these systems, that are letting them go through these loopholes to essentially get these very damaging products and pharmaceuticals like finasteride, dutasteride, SSRIs to the public for ridiculous use cases, right? They're targeting kids. They're targeting teenagers saying, hey, listen, you want your sex life back? You want to last longer? Take SSRIs. Oh, now your dick doesn't work because you took SSRIs? Here, take take these pills, right? Oh, your hair is lo- like you're losing your hair because of poor lifestyle interventions? Like take finasteride. Oh, now you have no androgen receptor expansion? Okay, cool. Uh, take Viagra again. So it's just this cycle. It's disgusting. <laughs> I can't stand it. Uh, you know, it's one of the few things that I get like quite infuriated by and I think if there's one thing that I would uh, go down fighting about, it'd be it'd be that stuff. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I, I you know I talk about it a little bit. There's like even a cross section of um, like functional practitioners who I think are doing a little bit more harm than good and kind of pushing supplements as well without really full under understanding of how they work. There's less side effects with taking obviously herbs and different, you know, natural products. So you really can't like, you're not going to go sue or anything, but I think they're not doing their due diligence. And, and I see a lot of like the, uh, and I, and I was in that in myself with the Lyme and seeing different doctors and getting all this blood work and none of it really worked. And it seemed like some of them were a little pushy, even though they were like these quote unquote functional medicine doctors. So there's a little crossover too. And I think probably anytime money's involved, you're going to get a little bit of that. That's just probably human nature. Yeah, there's money and ego involved, right? Everyone thinks that their way is the right way and they're going to push it in light of different, you know, opinions or different facts, right? There's a lot of cognitive, I guess like, yeah, cognitive or um, like, I don't know, bias reinforcement. Um, and we also need to understand that a majority of pharmaceuticals have been synthesized from naturally occurring compounds in nature, like salicylic acid, aspirin, that's just, you know, directly from willow bark. Right. Um, so like those same side effects can occur. And I think we also really need to understand that any compound is not going to act on just one mechanism in the body. There's going to be a myriad of me- different mechanisms that are going to be acted upon, a lot of which are unsavory, a lot of which are, you know, not ideal. So like reishi is a perfect example. I like reishi, you know, when I get concussions or I get my bell rung or I have a really bad inflammatory response, I'll take reishi because it's an incredible anti-inflammatory and antioxidant. But it's also a really potent 5-alpha reductase inhibitor. So, like, I'm not going to take reishi on a daily basis ever. Like, I'm only going to take reishi in those specific cases, but nobody talks about how anti-androgenic it is because of its negative impact on DHT. Yeah, it's funny you say that because it's, uh, you know, our buddy Clark, our mutual friend Clark that introduced us is is one who I really learned a lot of 
this type of stuff from where it's like you don't just take one mineral and like you know magnesium just doesn't just affect calcium you know like people want to or you don't just take selenium to detox mercury it's like everything has these second and third and fourth order effects that are downstream so we know the main ones and those get touted but like that's why when he's doing and kind of taught me with the mineral system it's like you, you got to balance the whole system at once you don't just take the iodine for the halogens like you're doing the whole system at once because everything's kind of interplaying off of each other and it's kind of the same with some of these supplements and i've kind of backed off a lot of like the fringe supplements i do still take more than what like clark or someone would recommend you know i like some uh, good algae and spirulina and there's a few things that i take nad um suppositories that you know and i take a zeolite binder there's a few things that i take that they wouldn't really recommend but i've still been getting good results so i'm still a little bit more like experimental than they are you know i've kind of just always been experimental drugs whatever <laughs> whatever partying so it's kind of my nature but i have backed off of like just taking what Whatever is like you read a, a PubMed study about it and it's like, oh, here's the benefits or like you said of Reishi. And it's like, okay, well, what are the other effects? And I think Dr. Tyler Pansner does a pretty good job about kind of weeding this stuff out too, but he looks at it from like the genetic code, obviously, and, you know, uses AI to analyze your genetics for that specific reason. But, you know, like curcumin is like this anti-inflammatory, but it's also an iron chelator. So if you're going to take it every day, you might end up with low iron. If you have high iron, that's great. It's going to be anti-inflammatory and it's going to lower the iron. But if you don't and you already are kind of somewhat anemic, then the curcumin is going to be part of the problem. So we have to look at the nuances and everything and try to make a little bit more sense of some of these supplements that you just see on whatever podcast or on Instagram or Twitter or whatever. Yeah, I think people should expand the curiosity and exploration phase for any of these. Because, I mean, there's compounds I've been taking for years that I still will stop taking dive back into the research as if I were just starting again, remove all presuppositions that I had and try to reinform my decision on that on a on a monthly cadence. And I really try not to take anything longer than a month. I cycle everything. I always entertain alternative opinions. I play devil's advocate and I think everyone should play devil's advocate. Don't try to convince yourself why you should take a supplement. Convince yourself why you should not take a supplement. Yeah, I totally agree. I'm, the, I'm this way with probiotics. I don't think that um, even a good spore-based probiotic is meant to be taking 365 days a year. So I think if you do a good 30, 60 day protocol and you're relatively, you know, eating healthy and, you know, doing whatever you're doing to detoxify and, you know, not just eating McDonald's, I think you can do probiotics for like 30 to 60 days, kind of do a little gut reset and then back off of those for six months or maybe a year. And you don't really always need those. And that probiotics is one that I think people should cycle. Yeah, I think a lot of people also get negative effects from probiotics, right? They get the histamine issues, they get the bloating, the inflammation, the rash, the brain fog. Um, you know, I find people are much, oftentimes much better off taking prebiotics and postbiotics, right? I, I find people have a lot of benefits with sodium butyrate, especially when it comes to mold, uh, potentially Lyme disease as well. Um, so yeah, I, I'm not even that sold on probiotics, to be honest. Um, a lot of them also just are, aren't accepted by the host, you know, like those, those microbes aren't making it to your small or to your large intestine to begin with. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's good always to just err on the side of caution, err on the side of scrutiny when it comes to supplements. If you are going to play the supplement game, play the supplement game, commit to learning about all the different mechanisms at play, commit to learning those intricacies in the system as a whole, or just don't play at all. 
Yeah, I, I totally agree. And after doing the HTMA, it's like, dude, some people don't even need a multivitamin. Everyone thinks that they should just like chill out and do a multivitamin. But we give certain people some a few B vitamins and then we give other people a whole multivitamin complex. And, it, it, you know, it's like magic. It works every time. So like as soon as you start getting into that world, you start to realize like how different people's like diets and stuff need to be even just a simple hair test and for people to make blanket statements and just say, oh, always take reishi or always take whatever. Um, what what gut supplement did you did you say sodium butyrate? Is that what you said? Sodium butyrate, yeah. What's uh, I think I seen you have a Twitter post about this. I've never looked into sodium butyrate. What what do you like about that? Yeah, I mean it's essentially just butyric acid in a form that I find relatively bioavailable. It's something that's naturally produced by our microbiome by certain bacterial strains. But our microbiomes are so destroyed, right? Like we don't have the colony size, the colony population to produce butyric acid at the levels needed. Um, you know, I primarily use it as an HDAC inhibitor, right? It inhibits the enzyme that in, like in, covers and covers our DNA and allows for more ample gene expression. So as I'm trying to kind of rewire my genetics to an extent to like induce new gene expression, I, you know, I'm taking pretty high doses of that to try to enact that. But, you know, the real reason that I like it and I find a lot of people notice benefits of it is it just smooths out your digestion perfectly. And with that smooth out digestion, that smooth out cognitive function follows, you know, that vagus nerve really has this incredible two-way connection. I noticed it very early on. Anytime my gut was messed up, my brain was messed up. My skin was messed up. My entire system was messed up. So I use it primarily for that reason, the HDAC inhibition, but also for, you know, the seeming neuroinflammatory or the anti-neuroinflammatory effects that it has. Interesting. So it's just technically a delivery form of butyrate because I've seen different butyrate supplements. I think I've even seen like a suppository version and you should, you know, the carnivores will tout that you can just eat butter for butyrate. And I mean, there's, there's definitely some there. I love, I love a good butter or ghee. Um, Ghee's great you that. Yeah. I mean, I think it's great. Yeah, I, I eat butter every single day. It's like no, yeah. no question. You can do that. You can take prebiotics like inulin that are going to feed those bacteria that produce butyric acid and butyrate. But um, when I'm using it, like the levels that I need to use it for, for that HDAC inhibition and that gene expression, like I'm going to have to take it in therapeutic doses because I'm, I'm looking for a therapeutic effect here. And I think that's a really important distinction. Most people don't have any therapeutic effect in mind. They don't have any end goal in mind. They're just taking a supplement because they heard it's good for you. And like, how are you supposed to monitor that? You know, how are you supposed to identify if it's working or not if you don't know what it's supposed to be doing? Yeah, I totally agree. I might check that out. Um, sounds cool. I kind of, I've always like liked butyrate, but I never. I don't know. You you also can make butyrate from just like you said, like fiber, right? Like short chain short chain fatty acids. Is if your gut's working correctly, we I guess let's preface that you would all you'd normally be making butyrate. Yeah, it's a postbiotic. It's produced by these microbes in our large intestine. So you give those insoluble fibers that aren't going to be able to be you know utilized by you. And they're going to go towards feeding these certain strains. Now, the issue is if you have some form of dysbiosis, those may go to feeding other, you know, deleterious strains. They may go to just being stuck in your gut and fermenting and causing bloating and inflammation and gas and all those unsavory digestive issues that so many of us deal with on a daily basis. So I've done that a little bit. You know, I like chicory root. Uh, I find that to be an effective source of inulin. But, you know, at the same time, it's, uh, it's pretty tough on your digestion. Yeah. Have you ever used acacia fiber after playing with a bunch of these like inulins and fiber supplements over the years? I found acacia fiber to be the most gentle. I feel good. My bowel movements are perfect. And I think there's soluble and insoluble fiber within that. I found that to be my favorite. I've tried like all the fiber supplements when I was doing like low carb and stuff. 
You know, I haven't because I really haven't experimented with fiber. I used to eat like a really heavy vegetable-based diet, like a raw vegetable-based diet. I ate meat too, but it was primarily vegetables because, you know, you're told that's what's good for you. And uh, I caused havoc in my gut, uh, like just a horrible digestion, always bloated. Um, so, you know, I haven't really dove back into fiber. I think my gut has been healed to the point where I could reintroduce it. Maybe that's an experiment that I do. That's actually a great idea. I think I'm going to do a, uh, a high fiber experiment when I go back home. Acacia, I want to try psyllium husk as well, just for kind of that motility, <clears throat> you know, just like soaking up all the water and kind of just literally like a, a pipe cleaner through your gastrointestinal tract. Yeah, that, that one definitely made me feel more bloated and almost made me feel a little bit more backed up when I took that. But acacia fiber is like this, you know, Ayurvedic kind of ancient thing they've been using forever. And a lot of keto, I got into it when I was keto because people are like, you know, the the um, net carbs are like zero or whatever. So you can kind of bump yeah. up the fiber. So, um, you know, so I just used, it, used acacia and I still use it even though I still eat carrots and some veggies and I eat... Um, sweet potatoes and pumpkin and, you know, white potatoes. Mm. I use, so I still get a lot of fiber in my normal diet, but I do you put a little bit of that acacia fiber, um, in my coffees and I find like I have perfect digestion. So definitely try out the acacia if you want to bump it up. But if so you haven't is been gut doing that, the primary thing that you notice from that, what's that is gut motility. The primary thing you notice just more fluid bowel movements. Yeah. Just like bigger, perfect bowel movements they come right out like it's crazy. i mean plus the mineral balancing stuff like getting the calcium and the magnesium and obviously the yeah. digestion working from eliminating the metals has probably been the biggest but acacia fiber worked even before i was you know had detoxed a lot like i've been using acacia fiber for a few years pretty regularly it's great okay i'm definitely going to try that i mean yeah because you know bowel movement frequency and motility and quality is probably one of the number one health heuristics that everyone should be focusing on right how frequently are you going to the bathroom how solid and how like what is the the composition of your bowel movements and you know how is your resting state of digestion like that's my go-to like i'm looking at that every day yeah i mean when I, i that's why i quit doing keto every time i would do keto even if i would do the carb cycling I was like, it was very irregular. And like, you know, I would have diarrhea or I would have constipation. And I'm like, I just don't think this is overall working for me. They're, <laughs> you know, they're like saying it's got all these benefits, but I either have diarrhea or constipation. It's clearly not working for me. So, um, yeah, you got, you got the shit on the both sticks, literally. Yeah. It was just like, it was, that's all like, especially if I was doing carnivore, like if I had no fiber, it was just like all diarrhea because it was just coming out and then it would never turn solid. And then on keto, if I started to add the fiber in and stuff, um, it would just like kind of be more constipation and then sometimes come out and then I would eat carbs one night and I would have a regular bowel movement the next night. It was just like a night and day. I just know I was like, okay, clearly I need carbs. Interesting. Interesting. All right. That's on my list. I'm going to dig into that after this call. Yeah, for sure. Acacia fiber, easy find. You can find it pretty much Amazon or whatever, really easy. Um, definitely one of my top supplements I've kept for a few years, for sure. Uh, I've seen you post about taurine, and this is one of my favorites. What do you like about taurine? Man, I love taurine. It is my favorite amino acid. I think out of all the functional amino acids, it's my favorite. It's all reliable. It's extremely safe up to high doses. It has these acute cognitive effects. It has these testicular antioxidant effects. It's great across the board, right? And I don't think that we're getting enough taurine in our diet. Now, the primary reason that I like taurine is because it's a testicular protective agent. It's a testicular antioxidant. The more mitochondrial density that you have in any one organ, the more susceptible it is to oxidative stress, right? Because mitochondrial DNA is much different than our typical cellular DNA. Remember, as you probably know, like mitochondria is a bacterial invader that came into these single-celled organisms a long time ago. 
they hung around long enough where they're like, hey, let's just become the same thing. But, um, you know, I really think that's important. I think that a lot of the biological fractions that we accrue affect our endocrine system first and foremost because they're affecting our testes, right? They're affecting a lot of these, you know, um, gonadal axes. Um, and uh, taurine is just a really easy thing that I can take on a daily basis to help defend that. I find it to also have this GABAergic effect, right? This primarily inhibitory neurotransmitter effect, but at the same time have these energy and stamina inducing qualities. So it's this incredible energetic yet calm demeanor that I'm able to get for it. Uh, I love taking a pre-workout because it increases that glycogen replenishment in your muscle cells. So those carbohydrates that you're utilizing are going to even more effectively fill up your glycogen stores as opposed to if you're just eating glucose without them. I notice acute physical benefits and performance. I notice acute mood benefits and performance. So oftentimes when I go out and I decide I'm not drinking alcohol, I'll have some taurine and I'll have like two grams of taurine, you know, and I'll feel great on it. Energized yet calm, you know, this great GABA flow demeanor. So I'm a huge fan. And, you know, the more I dig into it, the more incredible things I see about it. I haven't seen any negatives. Some people do notice a little bit of anxiety from GABA, or excuse me, from taurine, and that's potentially a GABA rebound. But I think also that could be because of the effect that it has on your blood sugar, right? It's doing a really effective job at taking that sugar and that glucose out of your blood and bringing it into those cells. So it could dis like debalance your blood sugar a little bit. But I always just take it with carbohydrates, and I feel great. I actually just took taurine about two hours ago. Pardon the interruption, I wanna take a quick break to talk about gut health. With all of the research coming out over the last decade, we know exactly how important the gut microbiome actually is for our overall health. If you're anything like me, then you have struggled with tons and tons of gut issues. I grew up on a lot of different antibiotics. As I got older, I did a lot of partying, drugs, alcohol, standard American diet, yada, yada, yada. Fast forward, I had chronic mold toxicity in line. After that, I really couldn't get my gut to function properly. I spent tons and tons of money on different kefirs, yogurts, probiotics, different things that really didn't seem to work. That is until I found Just Thrive. It's a 100% spore-based probiotic that arrives 100% alive in your gut for maximum impact. It has a thousand times better survivability versus other leading probiotics. It helps support digestive, immune, and total body health. For me, it really helped to beat bloating, gas, constipation, and diarrhea, and it is even clinically proven to address leaky gut in just 30 days. So what I do is I take two caps with my largest meal, and it really helps to improve nutrient absorption as well. And they are backed by a 100% money back guarantee, so for if any reason it doesn't work for you, no questions asked, you can get a refund. If you wanna try out Just Thrive Spore-Based Probiotics, go over to Just Thrive Health and use code ITP15 for 15% off at the checkout. If you're anything like me in the health and optimization space, you're not only looking for which supplements may make you feel optimal, but also different technologies. The problem with most technologies on the market is they can really burn a hole in your pocket. If you are looking for the most affordable, but yet yet highly effective technologies to help promote detoxification, better sleep, mitochondrial function, immune function, look no further than Therasage. I have their portable infrared sauna and I am willing to put that sauna against any other sauna on the market. It heats up quickly. I get an amazing sweat. I've been in some of these really, really expensive saunas and I prefer my Therasage sauna. 
The new addition that I have in my home is the Therasage PEMF mat. This is a game changer. A lot of people who are dealing with chronic illness and autoimmune conditions could really benefit for at-home PEMF. When you're trying to do PEMF out at a clinic, it can charge like 30, 60, sometimes $100 per session. Therisage has just dropped the most affordable PEMF mat on the market. You can use it daily. It has a TENS mat. It has red light. It's a heating pad. My wife is absolutely obsessed with this thing. It has just brought more energy, mental clarity, and all around overall well-being. I gave up my morning meditation recently and just started laying on the PEMF mat. It's such a great addition to have that with the sauna. The PEMF will help you to release a lot of the toxins and then you can sweat those out via the sauna and you will just feel rejuvenated. So if you wanna try out any of the Therasage products, you can use the code Kaufman10. I will link to their website in the show notes. They have the most amazing affordable technology biohacks on the planet. Yeah, uh, my buddy over Adam Marifiotti over at Lifeblood makes a pretty dope, like pure taurine. Uh, yeah, he sent me some of that. I love that stuff. Adam lives in the same town as me. We hung out the other day. Do you really? Yeah. That's yeah, crazy. Yeah, me and Adam chat all the time. I love that guy. Yeah, he's the man. I use his taurine. I love all of Lifeblood's products. You know, I I like knowing, you know, the person behind the supplements that I'm getting. And uh, his taurine's great. His tyrosine and phenylalanine, incredible. I mean, the purest products that I've seen, just like across the board, the excipients that they use, the flow agents they use, everything is just is clear cut. So yeah, I'm a big fan of Adam. I'm a big fan of Adam's products. Yeah, he sent me over the taurine because we, we were chatting about how we love taurine and I've taken it in different ways. And I usually just because uh, the sleep supplement that I take from Bioptimizers has three grams in it, um, Ooh, that and, and glycine. So I take that before bed. I love it. I wonder if some of the negative effects from people could be um, because of the how taurine works on bioflow as well. So it could be getting some of that liver pumping and maybe they're moving around a little bit of something as well. If they're having, uh, I haven't never had any negative experience with it, but that might be one of the issues as well. Maybe, yeah, you know, I forgot to include that as well. It's a primary precursor to our bile acid, right? Like it's the, the, like, I forget what Tudka is stands for, mm-hmm. but like the Taro Hexa, whatever, like that's, that's from Taurine. So that's a big effect as well. I can't really take it before bed. It gets me too energized, you know, uh, oh, really? which is funny because oh, right. I take like pro energetic compounds before bed more than I take sleep supplements. Like I'll take Shilajit before bed. I'll take L-carnitine before bed. If I take taurine before bed, I will kind of be up a little bit more. So I take it pre-workout. You know, that's my favorite time to take it. Yeah, I want to get into L-carnitine next, actually, because I love that as well. But um, I wonder if because the sleep supplement from Bioptimizers has the taurine, the glycine, and the pharmagaba, and the magnolia bark is where I probably don't notice as much of that stimulating effect from the taurine because it's, you know, it's obviously balancing out with all the other compounds in there. Because if I take... uh, Taurine in the day, like some of Adam's stuff, just like with a meal or whatever. I just feel really kind of like energized, calm, like feels like my nervous system's like kind of goes in chill mode. It's really dope. I like the taurine, but maybe the sleep yeah. supplement because of the other stuff that's in there is what's kind of not that magnolia out. bark will put you out. <laughs> you could yeah. probably, uh, yeah, you could probably like hard nose a double shot of espresso and take some magnolia bark. It'll chill you out pretty well. <laughs> Dude, I'm obsessed. If you've never tried the the Bioptimizer Sleep Breakthrough, it's dope. It tastes great. It's, you know, Pharmagaba, you know, Magnolia Bark, the Taurine, the Glycine, all things that I really enjoy and I get a great night's sleep. 
Yeah, you know, I don't really take sleep supplements before bed to sleep. I take them two hours before bed to put me into this GABA dominant state that just lets my creativity run wild. It's so incredible. You know, I find for me, someone with ADHD, maybe someone with like an overactive uh, like cortex and maybe an underactive frontal lobe. So they're kind of running free like crazy. I either have to ramp my central nervous system up to keep up to pace with my brain, or I have to ramp my brain down to keep up the pace with my CNS. So I'll take sleep supplements like, <coughs> excuse me, like average taurine, glycine, magnesium glycinate, uh, sometimes L-theanine, like two hours before bed. And I'll get into the best flow of reading, research, and writing ever. I'll do that with some nicotine to give me some form of cholinergic stimulation. And mm. that's where I get all my best work done. It's, it's actually quite funny. I might have to try that. I usually don't really include the nicotine as it gets later. Try to back off it a few hours before bed, even though I don't really think it affects sleep that much. I kind of just trying to get into chill mode a little bit more. But I do take the uh, sleep breakthrough usually. Like I don't take it right before bed unless I just like forget. But usually like an hour before bed where I'm kind of like slowly getting into this like calming state. And then if I take melatonin or whatever, then I take that closer to bed. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I'll check it out. Yeah. Um, L-carnitine. Let's dive into that. Um, why do you love L-carnitine um, and what do you use it for? Yes. Well, you know, I think with most compounds, there's hyper responders and there's non-responders. When it comes to anything anabolic or androgenic, I've always been a hyper responder. Like I take creatine and I feel like I'm on PEDs. I mean, my cognitive energy goes through the roof. My physical energy goes through the roof. I immediately get stronger and bigger. L-carnitine, that seems to have a similar effect. Now, oral L-carnitine is not very bioavailable. I mean, the bioavailability is laughable. So you need to take a lot. I'm taking usually about four, three to four grams of L-carnitine, L-tartrate. And then I'm also taking that with acetyl L-carnitine. The acetyl group in acetyl L-carnitine helps to pass the blood-brain barrier, you know, saturate the mitochondria in your brain and having those same fat mobilization and energy production properties just in your brain. Uh, so I find it to be a really good dopaminergic upregulator. It seems to potentially upregulate your dopamine receptors even after you get off of it, which is very interesting. Now, when it comes to L-carnitine in general, I think the energy output is significantly higher when I'm on it. The strength, the ability to you know burn fat is, is significantly better. Like It's an incredible fat loss tool if you are a responder to it. The only issue I have with L-carnitine is the TMAO production. I, you know, TMAO has been correlated with atherosclerosis and some, you know, uh, heart issues. Now, I don't know if I'm fully on board with that. I'm still cognizant of it, but I don't think it's that big of a concern. And we have to understand that L-carnitine in of itself is potentially cardioprotective. But the only issue is it makes you smell. Like, it makes you smell like fish. So, um, you know, you got to take it with aged garlic extract if you don't want to smell. It's also going to reduce some of those cardiovascular risks. But uh, if you're looking for probably the closest thing to an anabolic steroid in form of, you know, natural amino acid, L-carnitine, if you are a responder, is your best bet. And realistically, in a perfect world, you'd use subcutaneous injectable L-carnitine. You'd bypass that TMAO production. You'd bypass the bioavailability issues. And I've never taken it, uh, but I know people have taken it and it, they were like, yeah, I feel like I'm on steroids. That's interesting. I was going to ask you if you've ever done the injectable version because uh, I've just taken like the acetyl L-carnitine. Um, I know you can take like grams of it for sure. I usually take it when I have carbohydrates as well. And for anyone listening, um, it also increases uh, fertility, sperm motility. So you might want to um, watch watch what you're doing. You might get someone pregnant for sure um, if you're taking a lot of L-carnitine. 
Yeah, really, really important point you mentioned there, taking with carbohydrates, right? That L-carnitine needs to saturate your cells, right? So you need that insulin response to take that L-carnitine in your blood and shuttle it into your cells. Really important to take when you're having an insulin spike. I do it with my highest carb meal of the day, make sure that I am spiking my insulin, and then that really helps with that absorption. Yeah, I usually take mine with dinner for sure um, because I'm, that's where I'm usually having most of my carbohydrates and definitely have found benefits in that. I've thought about doing the injections. I know you can probably just get them pretty easy off of a peptide website, I'm sure, or something, but I've never mm-hmm. really looked into it because I always feel pretty decent off of the acetyl L-carnitine, but I'd imagine the injections probably take it to the next level. Yeah, I think, you know, I'm like I said, I've been pretty even keel the last year or so. Um, I was pretty, I was deeper into biohacking when I was working in a very cognitive demanding field. You know, I used to be in software and cybersecurity, but, uh, now it's like, I don't really need it. You know, everything carries a risk with it, right? The further you deviate from that natural baseline, the more variables are involved. And sometimes I just don't want to take on those variables. Yeah. I mean, that's why you moved to Mexico and you're chilling out and you got the jungle in the background. That's the move. Exactly. That is the real number one supplement. I will say it every single time. I love supplements more than most people. Nothing replaces more time in nature, more time with my feet in the ocean, more time swimming in the sun. You know, nothing beats that. I know. I feel you, man. I'm trying to get rich off this supplement company and maybe I'm I'm trying to move somewhere that's either more mountainous if I stay in the U.S. or it could be somewhere more tropical, like down there, Costa Rica. Um, I don't know. I'm trying to raise some of my own food at some point, even if that's like eight, 10 years down the line when I've kind of got the supplement company running and got everything um, moving, podcast flowing, you know, so definitely ideal. I'm either going somewhere tropical or I'm going somewhere in the mountains if I stay in the U.S. so I can just kind of hunt, be in nature, you know, get my feet in the grass and stare at trees. Well, hey, if everything works out well, you can do both. But, you know, the reality of this life is it doesn't take a lot. My, like, I was doing this before I did any of this online stuff. Like, I, I had a marketing agency. I quit software. I left the tech world, left cybersecurity, left all of that. And I went and I moved to the beach. And I was dead broke. And I was living a life very similar to what I'm living now. Did I look at prices of things a little bit more? Yeah. Did I, you know, have, like live in a less nice of a place? Kind of. But it was still pretty nice for what I was paying. And uh, the lifestyle was the same. I was riding a motorcycle on the beach, surfing, going through the jungle, spending time with animals. Like, it's all the same. So uh, I think it's important to go and test that out. You know, I think the worst thing that can happen with anybody is they spend their entire life working towards something and they get there and they realize it's not all that. You know, you know, all these guys that are working so hard to get their pension, they're working their ass off 60 hours a week for this ideal of living on a boat, you know, retiring, doing nothing all day, surfing through the Bahamas, and they get there and they finally get that pension and they go and they live that life two weeks in their board. And they're like, oh my fucking God, I just sacrificed everything to live this lifestyle and it's not what I wanted. That's terrifying. So I think everyone should go and they should test out that ideal lifestyle as soon as possible. Ask themselves what it would look like if it were easy, if I were able to go live the ideal lifestyle right now, test it out. Maybe that is what they're looking for. So then that reaffirms their decisions. It's going to make them work harder or it's not, which is good because now they can get it off of their mental and they can focus on what maybe the real ideal outcome is. Yeah, I'm super glad you brought that up because I I talk about that with retirement all the time and say that I don't think I'm ever going to retire. I'll always have my hands in kind of some project or even if it was just growing food, just something that kind of kept me involved, kept me in nature, hunting, whatever it may be, you know, spending time with kids. I don't have any yet, but, you know, future kids, whatever it may be. But I don't really look forward to this like one day I'm just going to give it all up and sit around and watch the news type of thing because I 
like you said, I think it can get really boring really fast. Even if you move to a beautiful beach city or your dream, you know, people move down to Florida a lot for retirement and then they kind of hang out in their little old person community in their condo because it's a little bit cheaper and, um, they don't really have anything else going on. Maybe I'll have to hit you and Adam up one day. Neurodegenerative disease. Just doing Yeah, no, it really will. You better pick up knitting art. You better pick up something that, you know, is busy where your mind works a little bit and you have some kind of, you know, hobby or something that you're working on regularly. Yeah. Yeah. I've been a student about that since day one. I'd rather be dead broke doing what I like than doing anything I dislike for any amount of money. Um, You know, it's personal value thing, but um, that was my mindset very early on and, you know, it served me well. Yeah, for sure. Looks dope down there. I have to maybe hit you and Adam up one day. Come, come check out the scene. What, what part of Mexico is it? It's uh, the West Coast, so it's um, like near Puerto Vallarta. It's the state above Puerto Vallarta. Okay, cool. I know that. I've only been to Costa Rica really, um, and spent some time there. I've obsessed with it, though. It was absolutely amazing. We did two weeks earlier, uh, earlier last year, and it was it was absolutely amazing. Yeah, it's beautiful. There's something special about this belt of the world, right? The equatorial region, tropics. It's it's very, very special. And, you know, I think a lot of it is like this place was relatively unperturbed by the Ice Age, right? So a lot of the foliage here, I mean, this is prehistoric foliage, right? Like this is Jurassic era foliage. It's been untouched. Uh, the energy here is just special. Interesting. What Did you could like go check it out before you moved there? What made you decide on it? I mean, I've been living in Mexico for like two and a half years, uh, Mexico City, Oaxaca. I came here for a surf trip about a year ago. Uh, I was going to spend two weeks here and I just never left. You know, my stuff <laughs> is still in Mexico City. I never went and picked it up. I'm like, yeah, this is good. I'll just stay here. That's hilarious. A lot of a lot of uh, U.S. citizens are moving to Mexico City, right? I think like, seen, I've seen some videos and read about it, how they kind of actually don't like it. They're kind of yeah. uh, making it Americanized there in Mexico City. They are. Too many. They're going for the wrong reasons, right? They're going because it's like a more unencumbered lifestyle. They're not assimilating with the culture. They're not learning the language. They're not actually embracing anything Mexican. So, Building you know, Starbucks. I speak fluent Spanish. I speak fluent Spanish in a very Mexican accent. Um, I embrace Mexican culture. I love Mexican culinary cuisine. I mean, I'm just, I, I really embrace where I live. And I think that's really important. You know, my grandpa was an immigrant from Iran. He was really big on that as a kid. You know, he like refused to speak Farsi because he's like, you embrace the culture of where you live. You respect the culture of where you live. So I'm really big on that. And, you know, that's one of the reasons I left Mexico City. Other than the fact that it's a giant city, it's just like there was that crowd coming in. They were very entitled. They were very pretentious. And uh, it rubbed me the wrong way. They were just horrible. <laughs> and I'll, I'll say that. like It was just like imagine all the L.A. rejects. They just moved to Mexico City and tried <laughs> to make it their own L.A. It's like get out of here, you know. Yeah, it's probably what it's starting to look like in Austin right now. I think that's like the new hub for everyone in L.A. I still have a lot of good, great friends in Austin, and I have fun when I'm there. I've been there a few times, but um, I would imagine living there, it's probably turning into like a small L.A., and it's probably annoying. Yeah, the L.A. and New York diaspora is uh, a disaster for mankind. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think we have a lot of uh, New Yorkers down here in Florida ever since, you know, the pandemic and stuff because they were locked down for so long. But it's like it's funny because it's like they bring a lot of their same values even though they left the like they left because of the values that they have it's like they the politics and whatever they like the policies they encourage they left because of that and then they bring it to the new place it's a very bizarre phenomenon yeah it's quite atrocious honestly uh i have little remorse for the la and the new york diasporans i think uh go back to where you came from you know go back to your city <laughs> yeah kidding. i've never even been to I'm, la I'm but kidding. i just 
I've heard so much and it, I can just imagine the type of people that are out there and they're migrating away from bad policies, but then still keeping the same mindset wherever they go. Yep. I, I got a job in New York. I was working with a company out there, um, like tech startup uh, in the house space. And I was there for a week and I'm like, this sucks. Get me out of here. Quit, left, and then moved to Mexico. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I live in a relatively big city, but it's not quite like New York or like Chicago. I've been to those cities and I, I, I don't think I could live like people just stacked on top of people. I mean, all everyone's just you, walking the streets, subway, not to mention it's cold as fuck. Like, I mean, there's like there's a lot going on in those cities. So I like you know, I visit them every once in a while. I used to at least when I lived up in the Midwest, but I could never live. I'm like Tampa's more like homey. We got the beach right over the bridge. You know, I can go be out in somewhat of nature. It's not a bunch of like um, skyscrapers and a million people on top of each other. I agree. I like Tampa. I uh, I, I, I was born there, actually. So oh, really? Um, yeah, I didn't live there, but I was born there. Um, I, I like it. I think if I were to move back to the States, I'd probably choose that area, but somewhere a little bit more on the outskirts. Yeah. Like I really like St. Pete a lot. Um, we kind of just have been settled in over here in Tampa, but you know, I'm only like 25 minutes or so from the beach. So really not that bad. I can zip over there, meet nice. all my, uh, health, health influence friends and hit the beach real quick. So not bad. Very nice. You get the best of both worlds. Yeah. Cause Tampa's kind of like more city, a little bit more going on and I'll, it's like you live in two cities almost. It's cool because if I need like a chiropractor or a massage person, I have like two demographics almost to pick from. If I'm looking for any kind of like whatever breathwork practitioner or whatever you're looking for, you have, you have certain people on the St. Pete side who are better and certain people here in Tampa that are better, but it's like two cities kind of in one because you're only 25 minutes away. It's really not even Ooh. that far. Yeah. Yeah. St. Pete looks cool too. Yeah, no, it's, it's a vibe over there. We might move over there one day, maybe. Um, but I don't know. I still think I'm trying to get all the way out of the city at some point. I do love the beach, but I would like to be more like a beach kind of where you're at or in the mountains, something more like that. It's different. U.S. beaches cannot compete with true, unperturbed, you know, Latin America beaches, Southeast Asian beaches. There's nothing like them in the world. Yeah, that's awesome. I want to get into some of... Uh, your training. So I, I like this idea. I've, you know, I've talked about cyclical diets and diet variation, changing with the seasons and, you know, how that's beneficial, but you kind of have like this cyclical approach to training where it looks like you do like heavy lifts for quite a bit. And then you go into more like body movement, maybe mobility and calisthenics and seems to work really well for you. And it's, it's interesting because I've never really done like super, I guess it kind of was calisthenics, but it was, you know, the one everyone knows P90X. But I remember I would kind of fluctuate between the gym and P90X at, at, for, for like a year and a half, two years at one point, it's probably the best shape of my life. I think because like the pushups and the pull-ups and the light weights make you look a lot more natural. But then like, if you go hit the weights, you can really like bulk up, but then you kind of get like leaner and more natural looking when you do like the body weight movement. So tell me what your thoughts are around that and how that's helped you. Yeah, so I have a very firm belief that a lot of the benefits that we realize from any protocol, right, diet, lifestyle, health, training, supplementation protocol, come from those short-term adaptations. If there's one thing that the human body and brain is really good at, it's at adapting to new environments, right? And that's where a lot of the benefits come from. That's where all of the growth comes from is that adaptation, that initial growth curve, right? So, you know, I have to ask myself, what is my objective from a physical and fitness standpoint? It's to enjoy training for as long as possible and to become as well-balanced and well-rounded as possible, right? To never feel like training is a chore. 
So I find the best way to do that is just to cycle my training, right? Like I want to be everything. I want to be a physical specimen. I want to continue to maintain competency in martial arts and in jujitsu and be a weapon there. I want to be able to go to the beat or go to the gym and be able to push more weights than the average person. I want to be able to go to the beach and do some crazy calisthenic workouts. I want it all. I want to have my cake and eat it too. Now, the only way that you can make real, true, linear progress is by committing to one thing as priority. So what I do is I just cycle my priorities, right? It oftentimes aligns with my traveling cycle because I move a lot and I, I move around and I travel. So, you know, I'll spend one month where my primary focus is weightlifting, progressive overload, moving the weights up in the gym, you know, maybe eating more, maybe doing a little less cardio, but maintaining all those other things at baseline, my mobility, my calisthenics, my jujitsu and my martial arts training. And then once that kind of tapers off and I reach that point of diminishing returns, I'll cycle it out for another training cycle. And what I find that leaves you with is a very unique and adaptive strength profile. And I really think that's kind of the beauty of it. I think that it gets you the full picture. Training any one modality for too long is a one-way ticket to burnout. It's a one-way ticket to muscle imbalances. And it's a one-way ticket to a very, you know, unilateral strength profile, right? Like, you look at a power lifter, they look like a power lifter. You look at a calisthenics person, they look like a calisthenics person. But what if you were to mix all of them as if you were mixing dog breeds, right? You get this very unique profile and you just feel great. So I love doing that. I've been doing that for years and, you know, I, I don't see myself stopping anytime soon. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Um, when I'm doing like lots of, uh, weight training in the gym, I haven't been able to work out as much as last year. Cause I've been doing the crazy, uh, mineral balancing detox and it's been a little bit tougher. Um, but when I, you know, I've always loved working out, uh, my whole life and I noticed like, yeah, if I'm not doing like some kind of yoga, um, at least once or twice a week when I'm like hitting the gym all the time, I feel kind of awful. Like I'm super tight, like my knees kind of hurt. Like, I don't know how anybody doesn't kind of switch up their, training of some sort, or at least take a day of like good stretching, not just like five minutes before your sets or whatever, like literal, like an hour of like really getting loose. And that's the only way I think that that even bears any longevity. Yeah. It's so funny because people see those as opposites when in reality they're complementary. Like those are two very different systems that you're working on there. Stretching and mobility, that's primarily neural, right? You're just telling your body, Hey, listen, you can loosen up here. You can trust that this muscle can hold your weight in this extended range of motion. So you're not double dipping there. Now, if I was doing calisthenics full bore and doing like strength training full bore, those would be double dipping. They would be taxing my nervous, my central nervous system. They would be overbearing on my muscles. Wouldn't give me that adequate muscle recovery, but inducing mobility regardless of what I'm training is actually going to benefit and push forward those endeavors and efforts in my hypertrophy training. Interesting. Now, how did you figure out like what calisthenic move you got any programs that you like, or do you kind of just start doing some body weight stuff and just go with the flow? You know, I have a very different approach to fitness. It's all flow based. You know, I've never used a program. I've never had any structured training routine. If I did have one, I'd probably make more progress. But listen, you know, my objective isn't short term progress. My objective is long term exploration. So everything I do is flow based. I do it based off of how I feel. It's what served me. And it's the reason that I've been able to train every single week without getting burnt out and without ever needing to utilize willpower for the last decade. You know, you see a lot of people that go really, really hard. They have incredible programming and structured training, but then they burn out after month three and they never go back to weightlifting again. I know so many guys that were bigger than me in college that were stronger than me in high school and they stopped training because they got out of the habit. It was too regimented. It didn't have the flexibility needed to adapt with them to that new stage of life. So now they just look like the average Joe. They lost all of that progress they made. They're out of the habit. And it is so much harder to get back into that habit once you lost it. 
Hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. I, get, I used to do like the powerlifting workouts and the diet. And if you just do that forever, like it gets so old and so boring. And now that I feel like you can, you can have ground beef and not have to eat chicken and you can, you can actually not really monitor your macro. You kind of, you know, if you've counted macros for a while, you kind of know where you're at. You don't really need like a calculator. You kind of just get it because you've done it for a while. So I do recommend some people, if you've never done it at all, then Hey, maybe do that for a, for a month or two and just kind of get a gauge of what, where, what are your macros or where are you even at? So, but once you get that down, I don't think you really have to, uh, really pay attention to that, but switching up the training is key. And that's why I like the yoga or, you know, I, I have a pet, my wife has a Peloton. So I'll just like ride that sometimes. Cause it's kind of, it's like more fun, upbeat, you know, I you know, do those different kind of things because if I just lift all the time, I get super burnt out. Yeah. Yeah. It's not how we're meant. We're meant to be adaptive creatures. But uh, what you mentioned about utilizing tools like training structures, like training logs, like food logs, like weight scale, counting macros, those are all great tools to build your foundation that intuition can be brought upon, right? That yield intuition. You know, I was reading Robert Greene's book, Mastery. I think it's an incredible book. I think Robert Greene's an incredible thinker. And he talks about how simple the life of the master is. Once you reach those 10,000 hours, everything becomes intuitive. You don't have to think about it. You just do it because those learnings are hardwired to that point where you don't need that structure. That structure is already embedded in your identity. It's embedded in your subconscious. So, you know, I just think I reached that point because I was neurotic in the beginning, right? I started training when I was 14, right? Doing push-ups in my room, doing all of these things. And I continued with that. And I used all of those tools to now I can eyeball like how many carbohydrates am I having in this like one potato right here. How much protein is in this handful of beef? And also, I think I just get to the point where I can tell like my body's response to the amount of protein that I'm consuming. I can feel the muscle hardness. I can feel when my glycogen stores are full. I'll eat carbs and I'll see like the vascularity just like flush through me. I'll see my muscles fill up. I'll feel that pump. So, you know, we got to understand that a lot of these tools, they are modern interventions. But at the end of the day, like our body has these signals that tell us, hey, this is how much you need. This is how much you don't need. Uh, the issue is we've kind of ran away from that intuition. I believe we've been conditioned to not trust our intuition and rather go based off of rational thought because it's easy to convince someone to follow an agenda or whatever you want to call it when you're basing things off of rationality. Because I believe that our rational thinking faculties are relatively underdeveloped compared to our intu intuitive thinking faculties. We rarely operated off of sheer rationality before. We didn't have time for it. So um, I think that everyone needs to kind of dial back into that intuition. Yeah. I totally agree. That's awesome. And, uh, it's funny you say that because I think sometimes people see my stories or what I did in a day or whatever. And they're like, how do you like make time and to do the sauna and do this and take every supplement? And it's like kind of that mastery piece. Like, right. Once you do it, it's just second nature. You don't even think about it. Right. You're like, Oh, I make this breakfast. Oop, take a couple supplements. Yep. I have lunch. I take a couple supplements. I got this time blocked out for the gym. Oh, I'm about to do a recording. I know what nootropics I'm going to take. Like, yeah, it seems like overwhelming in the beginning. And then it's like after you've just done it for years, it's like literally takes seconds. It becomes habit. And, you know, what is a habit? It's something that's easier for you to do than not to do. Yeah. And so when yeah, you're doing so these uh, bodyweight exercises, body are you putting in any like kind of um, maybe like kettlebells or something that's like lighter that'll kind of help with mobility or training different muscles in comparison to going straight to the gym? Yeah. You know, great question. It depends what I have at my disposal. One thing I have become very fond of recently are maces, right? Maces or, you know, even sledgehammers, axes, whatever is a lever leveraged weight on a stick. I mean, I find just like that flow movement 
is really appeasing to me. I think that that rotational torque is really important. That's where a lot of our strength is generated. So I've really been into that recently. I think that has a lot of carryover. I think it, it creates a very unique and natural strength flow that you really can't get with a lot more of these linear exercises that you do in the gym. I haven't really ever dug deep with kettlebells. Uh, you know, I just haven't really enjoyed them that much. But uh, maces, for some reason, I'm, I'm very much drawn towards them. Yeah, I need someone to teach me how to do like kettlebell swings like perfectly. I had this one guy that was in the gym for a bit that taught me a little bit on just like one one throw. He he trained with like some professional athletes and was kind of helping me out. Um, but you know, I never done the maces. I think they they look super cool. They seem like if you're just kind of out like in the sun doing some grounding that you could play with that. I always yeah. seen like the on it ones look really cool. They're like super dope and they have like figures on them. I've seen people playing with those. I might have to try that out. Yeah, I mean, you can do that, right? You can buy a $300 mace or you can buy a $12 sledgehammer. You know, they're the same thing, right? It's a weight on a pendulum. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, hey, that's the reality of, of most fitness, right? It's it's um, it's turned into a spectacle and then with that spectacle comes a huge price tag. But yeah, I mean, like when I'm doing calisthenics, I'm, I'm at the beach. We've got these bamboo sticks that are like these palm sticks that we use to create a pull-up bar. We've got a dip station. We've got like a kettlebell or we've got like a literal sledgehammer and a, and a tire. And, uh, man, that's incredible. It makes me feel so good. Honestly, I would train just that when it comes to just feeling good. But I like pushing really big weight at the gym. I like the capacity for uh, for progressive overload. And I like having some of those more, you know, non-natural, uh, more aesthetic, uh, large, like, muscle bellies, right? Like, when I train exclusively calisthenics, I notice that, like, I kind of shrink down a little bit. I'm very lean and, and tight, but like I don't have that like large demeanor, which is part of the reason that I like, you know, the traditional hypertrophy training. So, you know, most people are going to say it's either one or the other. I say like, why not both? Why not get the best of both worlds? Why not be bigger than the calisthenics guys? And why not be more mobile and functional than the gym guys? Yeah, that makes sense. I wonder if the, I think one of the bigger reasons too that, I did well with like P90X because I'm naturally just like thicker, got like Northern European kind of Viking style genetics. So it's like yeah. a little bit harder for me to cut down, super easy for me to bulk. And I think when I was doing that and just eating right, um, I just looked really, really good because it leaned me down and then it made my muscles look more natural. But I was still kind of gaining muscle on that kind of P90X program, even though it was mostly push-ups and like light weights because I'm just naturally thicker. So I think some people who have a hard, harder to gain, they probably need to go in there and push more weight, but I love to throw around weight. I, you know, I used to squat like 600 pounds in high school. So, Holy I mean, I, 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 yeah. Yeah. Um, you're cornbread. I forgot you're cornbread Midwesterner. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, my family's from West Virginia. Uh, like my mom was born in West Virginia on the farm. I got big Viking Northern European um, genetics, even though my dad wasn't around. He was like a big six foot six. And like, I mean, all my stuff's like whales type Viking type. And you yeah, know, <laughs> uh, and my family, you know, like farm boys in West Virginia. So I could definitely got a little bit of that in me. Yeah, I've got that. Uh, I'm German and Persian. So it, it's very interesting to go back and look at your lineage. And that's something that we've lost in modern Western culture. I mean, like, you know, on my, on my Persian side, they've got the lineage going back to like a thousand years, you know, but in the modern culture, like you don't care. People were named like Leonidas, son of, you know, X, like they were just named son of their dad. Like the lineage was so important. And I think that's something we really lost, something I've been pursuing and exploring, just like seeing pictures of, you know, my grandparents and my grandparents, grandparents, and like photos of them in the war. They were units like these guys were fighting and they were like boxers in the army. And I was like, that brings so much lore into your life. And it gives you almost like a legacy to pursue. So that's something that I think is really important. And it's really overlooked. 
Yeah, no, I totally agree. I didn't know much about my genetics growing up, but kind of getting into the health space, like, oh, let me do an ancestry and had, you know, some few, not Pansner, but some other people read my genetics and you know, just kind of getting to, you know, grasp of where you're from. It makes you think, right? Like I grew up just like, oh, I'm, I'm from Flint, Michigan. Like, you know, I just, <laughs> you know, my mom was born in West Virginia. We go down there once a year and visit, you know, great grandma and stuff. And, but they never talked about like where they were from or where we migrated. So it was good to actually like kind of know and get a little bit of that, um, just kind of piece of the puzzle there for you to kind of maneuver. Maybe I should eat this way or this is how I am. But, you know, I, yeah, I really like that as well. So important because that is your genetic encoding. Like your ideal environment is hidden in your genetics. Now, there's always going to be variables. There's always going to be outliers. There was always that one person in the tribe that made the excursion out and started their own. So, hey, maybe that's you. But those hardwirings, you know, call them culture, call them genetics, are still part of your genetic code, right? Like culture determines genetics and genetics determine culture. Like the adaptations and the traits that are selected for in like a breeding pool are based off of the culture and what they value. So like those are going to be carried on. So like for me, like being Persian and German, those are two very, very different cultures, but those are in my genes. Like the German stoicism and then the Persian, like wear your emotions on your sleeve. Like they're, they're oddly combined and it creates a lot of cognitive dissonance, but like it's part of who you are. And I think it's really important to understand those genetics and that background to get a full understanding of who you are and why you are the way that you are. Yeah, I totally agree. Couldn't have said it better. I know one thing you mentioned was uh, martial arts. What, what kind of martial arts are you into and um, what kind of benefits do you get from that? Yeah, so I've always been big into like the idea of combat. I've always been obsessed with it. You know, growing up, I was just obsessed with traditional martial arts. My parents, uh, they're more academics. You know, they didn't really even like sports, let alone the idea of fighting. Uh, I got in a lot of trouble as a kid as well. So they're like, the last thing we're going to do is put this kid in martial arts classes, right? But, um, you know, when I was 20, when I graduated college, uh, I was like, well, now is the time to train martial arts. So I got really, really, really into it. I was training a lot of Muay Thai at first. And then, you know, I, I started focusing more on jujitsu because with Muay Thai and any striking art, the objective is to give your opponent brain damage, right? Like that's how you win. <laughs> Who accrues less brain damage? That's usually the winner. So it didn't really have that longevity and it didn't scratch the itch of wanting to fully fight and see what you're made out of and put yourself up against fellow man. And if you think about it, like look at any old movie about any ancient culture. What were all the adolescents doing? They were fighting one another. They were constantly sparring. They were constantly testing each other. They were just roughhousing 24-7. And we've completely created a culture that is devoid of that. I mean, even just like roughhousing at, at recess will get you detention, right? So, you know, that sucks. That is something that's so intrinsic to being a man and it's completely robbed from us. We live these overly soft lifestyles and your body will not produce those, you know, androgenic hormones that are needed to be competitive in a physical environment if you do not have that stimuli that is that requires it right it's not going to waste important biological energy to ramp up your testosterone if you have no need for it so that in and of itself the biological component of fighting cannot be understated and i think every person should go through a period of at least learning how to fight now aside from that i think learning the underlying connection that humans have with violence and the underlying connection that humans have with combat is really, really important. It changes the way that you interact with the world. It changes the way that the world interacts with you, right? Knowing like what you're capable of is really important. Being able to have some sense of control in a social interaction in any environment, it just changes your demeanor. It changes 
the way that you think, it changes the way you behave and the way that you act. So, you know, it's been an absolute life changer for me. I think it's probably one of the biggest character development things that I've taken on. And it's something that I'm absolutely obsessed with. And it, it just like, it clicks with me. Like it was something that clicked. I never really had that athletic I always felt like I had a lot of athletic potential. I felt that it was never actualized until I started training martial arts. And that was the one sport that really clicked. And I'm like, this is it. And if you think about it, any sport is just ritualized war, right? You have two teams going together, like ritualized tribes, Patriots and 49ers, whatever you want to call them. And they go to war, right? And that's ritualized war. And you have the two tribes cheering for one another. And there's a winner, right? That dominates the other one. But at the end of the day, with any sport, you could beat someone in one-on-one on basketball. At the end, you're still like, hey, listen, I could beat you in a fight. But if you're training martial arts, there is no, like, you beat someone in a fight, you're like, hey, I could beat you in another fight. Like, that is the end-all be-all. So the relationships that you build, the camaraderie that you build, the humility that it generates, and the better understanding of human nature that it produces is just invaluable. Yeah, that's big. I've still never done martial arts, but it's kind of on my list. I have a buddy here who's been like a black belt jujitsu who's been doing it for like 17 years, like always tells me to get into it. And, um, I like the, you know, kind of the camaraderie and the, you know, the men's group that you'll build from it. But the humility part seems to be important, right? Like, because in the beginning, you're going to get roughhouse pretty much. You're going to get thrown around, even though you've lifted your whole life or your big. You'll see the videos of the bodybuilder guy who tries to swing on the guy who does jujitsu and just gets his ass whooped. Like, it's just, you know, makes total sense. And so it's like, obviously, yeah, I used to fight when I was younger here and there. Maybe I won those, but like, not against someone who was trained and really knows how to protect themselves. So, it just feels like, um, as a man in particular, you should learn how to do that. And just in case, maybe, maybe there's a situation where you need to handle yourself and it's, you know, with somebody who you need some of them moves. And then just that always going through it and then really allowing yourself to be bad at something for a long period of time. And then one day you might win that role or that grapple. And you're like, hell yeah, I'm, you know, I'm getting somewhere with this and this takes a while, but I think it's important. I think it trains discipline and that discipline carries out within just other, you know, faculties within your lifestyle. I couldn't agree more. Everybody thinks they're a good fighter until they like start learning how to fight and you realize, you know, nothing. It really is so important for you to test your might, right? To see what you're made out of and to see if you can actually, you know, handle, you know, the crucible or whatever you want to call it of, of combat. And, you know, I think that's huge. I think also the component of, yeah, I, I, yeah, I think it's just the component of control that you get, you know, the sense of control that you get. I mean, at the end of the day, also realizing that like any fight in like a social public environment is, is superfluous. The the risk to reward ratio is, is ridiculous, right? Like I, I think it's completely nonsensical to get into any form of, of fight outside of the gym. Like, especially if someone has a knife or a gun, you're screwed. I don't care how good you are at jujitsu. If they have a weapon, you're fucked. Like there, there's nothing you're going to do about that. But um, it, it really is the cognitive component of it. Like the, the, the calm demeanor that you get from it, the understanding of yourself and building out this game. You know, this is the beauty. There, there's an ideal shape for basketball. There's an ideal physique for football. When it comes to fighting, your game is built exclusively off of how you are built, right? What are your proclivities? What are your what like what are your natural tendencies? And then building a unique game around it. It's called martial arts for a reason. It is an art form, and it's just I, I love it. It's incredible. Yeah, I mean, it just makes total sense. I I think that the martial arts community is probably even more calm in the face of those kind of public, you know, 
interactions, you kind of laugh those off more, right? Because you kind of know what you're capable of. You're like, if this guy touches me, then I'll handle it. But I'm really not going to like escalate this situation because it's pointless for me. Like I'm a black belt in jujitsu. Like I'm going to kill this guy. And I think that that kind of confidence, people would think that it would be, you would be the more person who's aggressive. And I, I find that I think that that community is less aggressive because they know what, what will happen. Near unanimously, right? And you have to understand that a lot of posturing that humans do and that animals do is to avoid getting into actual physical uh, fights, right? Like someone will posture up and they'll yell and they'll make themselves big because they want to intimidate the other person to disincentivize them getting in a fight with them, right? Same reason that bears do this, right? Like every animal, they fluff their feathers up really big because they don't want to get into a fight. So when you feel like you have some semblance of control, or at least you've been around those type of situations, you're not going to do that because your objective is to calm things down. Like you feel more in control of the situation, but there's always variables. Like you get thrown on your head. I don't care how good you are at jujitsu. Like someone picks you up and throws you on your head in the concrete. Like it's game over. Someone else gets injured and you're involved. Like you are, that's probably worse than you getting beat up to begin with. Like the lawsuits that ensue, the potential jail time, like it's just so not worth it. So yeah, I mean, I definitely, you know, never even consider getting into any form of physical altercation outside of the gym. And that came from training. You know, I see it with a lot of other people, uh, you know, the people that usually get in fights on the streets aren't fighters, unless you're a sociopath, right? Like the sociopath and psychopaths that learn how to fight, those are the real troublemakers. But the average person that learns how to fight, they're going to notice they'll be in a lot less confrontations. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I'm from the hood. I'm from Flint, Michigan. So there's, you know, a lot of yelling and a lot of, you know, tough guy trying to back the other person you know a lot of bark no bite you know a lot the loudest people we always used to say is like like you'll knock this dude out if he starts yelling and acting a fool like he'll you'll probably knock him out is how we used to look at it because we're like all of us who like kind of just like carried ourselves more normal had it been in real fights we're like kind of like yeah fuck this guy like he kind of just yelling to try to make a scene and if he makes a scene then it'll get broken up by you know all the people around because usually once you're loud and everyone's looking at you then it gets broken up by a bunch of different individuals and then they just kind of look tough because they're yelling right so we kind of always used to know that those were like just you know it was nonsense mostly that's the fabric of reality that you become attuned to once you start learning about like fighting. Like, you just see it and you can't unsee it after that happens. Yeah, I think we just naturally because it just it was so much of that like in Flint, Michigan. Everyone wanted to be the tough guy, and there's a lot of trauma responses, and you know there's crazy stuff going on, and people are on drugs and stuff too. So there's like a lot of factors to it. But we did kind of always unanimously say like, oh, the, the, the loudest guy who thinks he's the toughest is like usually the one who's always getting beat up somewhere. Always, always. That's so funny. <laughs> like, like if it push comes to shove, that dude's getting beat up. <laughs> <laughs> like it's just, just how it was. Because like most of us were just like trying to, you know, whatever, get laid or just have fun, have a good night with the boys, whatever it was. And, you know, it was like always a one, one loud guy who like, you know, ruins the whole party and he's like always somewhere getting beat up. Yeah, it's, it's almost always deep rooted in self-consciousness and uh, lack of self-worth, you know some issue or trauma response that they're trying to project on other people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Cool, man. I want to transition in this last part of the show. Um, I posted in one of your posts on Instagram that struck a chord with me. I didn't when you know, when I first actually reached out to you about the show, I didn't even know that you were kind of pro psychedelics and also bringing in like the nuances of, psychedelics and what it may be and you kind of had this post about you know psychedelics and you know enhancing narcissism and seeing that in the community so first i guess let's discuss like um what is your experience with psychedelics have they been mostly positive uh near unanimously positive 
Yeah. And, uh, you know, so I, I've tweeted 15,000 times. I've done probably 100 podcasts, and I never talk about psychedelics. And there's a reason for that. I just don't think that they're suited for everybody. I think they're a very powerful tool. And with any powerful tool, there's an equal potential for them to be negatively or positively powerful. Now, uh, you know, my experience with psychedelics has been positive. I believe that, you know, I have a relatively robust brain, one that was capable of, of handling some of the neuroplasticity that's induced after going through a psychedelic experience. Um, I'm also like an adamant experimenter. I'm very high on the openness scale when it comes to personality traits. So I'm willing to have my entire worldview absolutely shattered and be able to craft a new one from scratch. The way that I explain psychedelics to a lot of people is that if your brain is a sledding hill, you know, every time that you make a thought, that neuron firing, that neural pathway is like a a track down the hill, right? The more you go in that general direction, the more likely you'll go down that same track. And the more you go down that track, the more ingrained it gets, the harder it is to get out of it. Well, taking a psychedelic puts on a new layer of snow on that entire hill, which is great because now you can find a different way down to the bottom, but it also carries risk with it, right? Like you may run into a tree, you may get lost, you may end up where you don't want to end up depending on what your intention is going down that hill. So it is risky. And, you know, I know a lot of people that have discussed, you know, negative things that have come out of their psychedelic use. And uh, it's something I'm very cognizant of, especially using psychedelics while your brain's still developing. It doesn't really make sense to me. Why are you going to mess up your neural wiring and chemistry while your brain's still developing? Um, but yeah, I mean, like my experiences have been overwhelmingly positive. I think that I've gained a lot of insight from them. You know, I've always been a very open thinker, so they've kind of expedited that. But I also think that all of the insights and outcomes that I've derived from psychedelics could have been like achieved without the use of those compounds. It would just would have taken longer. Yeah, I agree. And I, I never really thought about it that way, but I, I'm in kind of the same camp as far as exploration and like open-mindedness and like so my ability to actually go into a different realm maybe interact with a different being you know see childhood traumas you know look at my family you know lineage in a different way and just have my complete worldview kind of shattered you know in a matter matter of a couple hours and then my ability to stay grounded when i come back and not to you know internalize and basically identify with the psychedelics or being some kind of god or some kind of spirit um, that makes a lot of sense. I never really thought about it in that way. I think we might be similar in personalities with that. And somebody who's not capable of doing that, I think that you can get a little bit lost in the psychedelics. And also you can keep running back to psychedelics if you don't know how to integrate that within your just worldview in your daily life. So it can be kind of a pattern where you're always looking for that high and you always want that honeymoon phase to go on. And then after it's done, you may have not you know, integrated it or like how we talked about earlier, I don't really need to touch on it because I've had shows about the burnout phase I think people are in when they go into these psychedelics and then having deranged mineral patterns when they come out and even being stuck in more of a burnout. So I do think that we're probably pretty similar with that, like open worldview and ability to stay grounded within, um, you know, what happened from the experience and kind of like just try to manage it and think about it logically, what happened, what can I take from it, but then still just like be yourself. Yeah. I mean, listen, there's a reason certain psychographics enjoy psychedelics more than others. A lot of people in our space, I mean, we do a lot more exploratory creative work. So we're naturally higher on openness. That's why there's a lot more psychedelic use in our space. Now go and look at that in finance or in some of these more linear pursuits like politics. There's not going to be a lot of people that enjoy psychedelics in that space because they have a very structured linear worldview. So any deviation from that worldview is going to send them off their rocker, right? It's going to be a lot more disruptive which is something that I, 
I find relatively interesting. But um, yeah, I mean, like every time that I've done, you know, actual serious intentional psychedelics, uh, I've had great outcomes from it. I've had rapid and serious lifestyle changes that like for most people are would be like unearthing their entire life. But that's something that I do anyway. That's something I do in light of any substances. Like I'm pretty consistent at unearthing everything that I do almost every six months and starting over. That's just my M.O., Right. So this was just like an expedited method of me doing the same thing I do anyway. Yeah, I, I guess I'm, I'm kind of in the same camp, too. I'll, I'll switch, you know, diets, camps, supplementation, whatever it may be, as I dig through more, uh, you know, information or hear somebody on a podcast that sparks my interest. I don't really get too rigid with what I believe in. And um, I maybe that I think some of that fluidity comes from psychedelics as well. Even at a microdose level, I think you can kind of start to realize specific patterns, especially on like an emotional level, maybe how you speak to your spouse or, you know, maybe how you interact with the fucking lady at the gas station. I don't know. And you were kind of a dick. Like you might, you might notice that a little bit more. You're going to notice that a little bit more when you're on, you know, even a micro dose, but from a, you know, a macro dose perspective, I think that I'm willing to have like these earth shattering, you know, experiences because I would pretty easily do that on my own without the psychedelic, you know, I'll, you know, Oh, I carnivore is the best way to eat. And then I'll go, Oh, whatever. I'll, you know, I was, I've been vegan, vegetarian. I've been vegan keto for crying out loud. That was oh pretty God. dumb, but, um, you know, yeah, well we, not we won't go out there. You basically are eating like protein powders and coconut oil and, you know, like <laughs> just like full fat coconut milk and protein powder and like fucking tempeh. So pretty, <laughs> pretty ridiculous, but, um, don't ever do it. It only lasted a couple months, but, um, you know, I was just, you know, I've explored these things and I'm willing to change my belief patterns pretty willy nilly. And I think some of that helped. Some of the psychedelics have helped some of that, but I've kind of always been that way as well. Like I'm not scared to transition and I'm not scared of like the pushback of changing my opinion because I think that actually is a sign of intelligence. And some people really, you know, a lot of people who have are closed minded, they don't look at it that way. They're like, oh, you're eating red meat. You were just vegan for a year and a half or whatever. Like people don't look at it that way. They think that you're kind of wishy-washy or you flip-flop on things. And I think that that's actually a sign of like open-mindedness and maybe, you know, just sifting through more research and digging through more information and figuring out what feels right. And then being intuitive. A lot of people don't trust themselves enough to change. They get really stuck into camps and tribalism. And so I think that the psychedelics have helped that, but I think it can, it can go the wrong way. And I'd like to speak out about that a little bit. And I really like the post you had about the narcissism. Cause I think, you know, that that attracts them because now they kind of speak in a different manner. Like they're like holier than thou, or they're like some kind of like monk or guru when they're speaking to you or speaking to people. And, and that can get really weird because now someone may look up to you kind of like as a guru because they maybe haven't done psychedelics or they're new to them. And you can use like your experiences to manipulate somebody who hasn't had those or who's easily to manipulate. And I think it can go wrong. Yes, I couldn't agree more, right? And we have to understand that every, like everything, you know, traits and personality and behaviors included, there is a threshold of optimal, you know, there's an optimal window, right? Like there's this good saying, it's like, don't be so open-minded that your brain falls out. Now, when it comes to the narcissism component to it, it's the spiritual narcissist. And there's plenty of spiritual narcissists that have never touched psychedelics. But it seems that once you reach a certain threshold of enlightenment or wisdom, there's a certain level of narcissism that comes with it. And I think also it's just a uh, 
uh, a vocal minority, right? Because who are the guys that become the biggest gurus? They're the ones that are very loud. And what comes with being very loud, enjoying spotlight? What comes with enjoying spotlight? Narcissism, right? So then they're given this power, they're given this pedestal that they're put on, and then they usually utilize it to stroke their own ego. And it's so funny, right? Because they're taking these ego dissolutioning, like dissolution compounds, and then they're like, I did it, me. I destroyed my ego with my giant ego. And it's just so laughable. I can't take these guys seriously. I think that they ruin the sanctity of psychedelics. It's a reason that I don't really involve myself with the psychedelic community. It's a reason I don't speak on psychedelics. I think psychedelics are a very individual thing that should be taken on in your own discretion. They not they shouldn't be pushed upon you by other people saying, hey, do this, or even worse. Yeah, yeah. like, you know, I think it's, uh, it's a line that, like, I really don't like uh, involving myself in or, like, coming across. It's just so off-putting, you know, and, and I really try not to involve myself with anything I find off-putting. Yeah, I, I've came full circle on that. I think probably if you'd have asked me, um, you know, seven years ago when I started playing around with microdosing and they helped me, um, you know, quit drinking alcohol quite a bit and quit using, you know, Adderall and things like that, I would tell you probably everybody should do psychedelics. And then now that I've done them quite a few times and I've kind of seen the communities and what can happen and just like learn from people and listen to lots of random podcasts. I think you should proceed a lot more with caution and know what you're getting into. And then also be able to dissociate between the experience and real life. And if you can stay yourself and have those experiences, that's great. But I think a lot of people, they, it's, it's more challenging because you really go through it. You really go to like a completely different realm, a different world. And it's hard to come back and just be you and just be yourself if you can do that, then I think you can get a lot of benefits from it. But if you can't, you might want to, you know, tread lightly. Yes, uh, I couldn't agree more. Um, but yeah, like I said, uh, my I, my discontent is not with psychedelics in like as a, a, a training or like a, a healing modality, whatever you want to call it. It's with this specific archetype of person, the spiritual narcissist. And like I said, that, that they can become a spiritual narcissist with or without psychedelics. It just so happens that a lot of people align themselves with it because it's unearned wisdom, right? It's like, oh, I take this this mushroom or I take this like uh, traditional medicine and I'm all of a sudden enlightened and they feel like they're better than everybody else. I just, you know, I just don't like narcissists in general, I guess. Um, <laughs> you know, I was talking today about this guy on YouTube uh, and I was like talking to my buddy. He's like, yo, check this video. I'm like, dude, I can't watch this. Like this guy's a narcissist. And he's like, yeah, I know. But like he, he says that he's a narcissist. Like he admits it. I'm like, it doesn't make it better, you know, like saying that you're narcissist just makes you more narcissistic. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you can identify with it, but it's it's crazy because narcissists are built a little bit different than a normal, like a liar. I think they they kind of believe themselves, like they they'll come on to you, and they their worldview is all like what they've done for you and what they've done for other people, and nothing about what they've taken emotionally or anything from anybody else. You know, especially if you're in a relationship with one. I've had a few friends who've been pretty damaged from a real narcissistic type guy and you know they but the narcissist doesn't look at it that way they really believe like their side of the story and they believe the stories that they tell themselves like literally they don't think that it's like some made up thing they're living like in a different world they believe everything that they think and that's like the damaging part of it so now if they become like this kind of more enlightened spiritual person then they still believe themselves and they still believe them stories and they still take from people and they don't see it yeah they're not lying they're just crazy you know <laughs> the telltale sign of a narcissist it's just all about me you know, yeah. it's so funny because I'll watch two things, uh, like two people discussing the same topic. One of them, it'll be all about you. It'll be all about the viewer. And the other one, the narcissist, it'll be all about me. 
I'm I'm the focus here. So uh, yeah, avoid narcissists. I think if you want to live a good life, you know, keep them out of your life. Keep your distance because at the end of the day, their one and primary objective is to better themselves. I know a few narcissists, and they may be great guys. Like you may like spending time with them, but no long like long term when push comes to shove. You will never be priority and you will likely be led astray by the narcissist. Yeah, beautiful, man. I think that's a good way to end it off here. Um, <laughs> thank you so much for coming on the show. Why don't you tell everybody where to find your work? I know you got dope Twitter, Substack, all the things. Let everyone know where they can find your work. Yeah, absolutely. I'm on all platforms at Noah Ryan Co. I do most of my posting on Twitter and then most of my long form on Substack. So check it out there. I've also got a Telegram group. You can get all of that through uh, Twitter and then links on Substack. All right, dope, man. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Matt. I appreciate it. Cool. Stick around while I close out the show here. If you enjoy this show, would you please take a second to subscribe, rate, and review it for me? Also, if you'd like to know more information about Combo, personalized one-on-one coaching with me, or for upcoming retreat information, which I host with my wife, please visit my website in the show notes or DM me on Instagram. My handle over there is at Integrative Matt. Until next time, my friends.